Hello everybody and welcome to the Alien vs Predator Galaxy podcast, the original Alien and Predator podcast. This is regular host Aaron Percival aka Corporal Hicks. And this is co-host Adam Zeller aka Ridgetop. And this is another day, another glorious day in the core. This is AJ Bischoff aka Voodoo Magic. And this is Eric Adams, Xenomorphine. I'm here because I'm invited. <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> Someone who said we need another one for this. <laughs> I've never heard Eric sound so fucking enthusiastic about, I'm really happy about my most favourite film ever. <laughs> <laughs> it's got to be brought up because we always rag on Adam about this as well. That is, Eric asks, can we make sure we start on time, please? Because I've got things to be doing afterwards. This microphone. You know, thing. when someone asks that, they're going to be the last. One it to jinxes. Show up. Yeah, everybody. It knows jinxes. That. 25 minutes later, we're now starting. <laughs> mm-hmm. Hands up, it's my fault. I need to make an amendment to the document that I keep for my uh, How Long Does Adam Keep Us Waiting feature. Oh, you're going to have multiple t- multiple categories on there now. Yeah. Huh? Got a gold star. Although you guys probably got some catching up. So. Oh, God, yeah. Everybody's got... But to be fair, I haven't kept track for a little while. It was just funny for a time. But we are here to celebrate and talk about the 35th anniversary of Aliens. Yes. So we are recording this the last part of June, but you will be listening to this in July, which is the 35th anniversary month. All being well, you'll be listening to this on the anniversary. Oh, is that when we're releasing this? On the anniversary itself? That's the plan. That's why we record it so far in advance, to give my lazy ass time to edit these things in time for release. It it does mean I'm going to abandon the previous episode and then come back to it after this one, uh, because I've been so slow editing that. But, you know, woo! I'm sorry. I've been. I felt like shit this month. I've just not really, not really been too motivated to do stuff. So, well, this year, in fact, you know, I was just just checking the podcast out. You know, how we normally used to have like two a month. Yeah, that's not happened this year. It's been a rough year, but things are looking up, so that's good. Yeah. So we do, we do have plenty recorded, just not necessarily edited and ready to go yet. But we're just not shunting them out like we used to. Quality over quantity. I'm just hoping you know the world picks up at some point soon. He says drinking alcohol. <laughs> we still get once a month at least, so that's good. Man, everyone's so depressed. Uh, well, we won't be shortly because this is undoubtedly not only one of the best films in the franchise, but one of the best films full stop as far as I'm concerned. And I'm sure many of our listeners are concerned and I'm sure you guys are concerned. Mm-hmm. So 35 fucking years. Yeah. It feels like the 30th uh, anniversary celebrations weren't too long ago, you know, with the big anniversary panels and stuff like that. So mm. time flies. And Alien 3's 30th next year, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, we're hitting a we're hitting a good few chunky milestones. Then we have Predator next year, 35th. Yeah. Time's flying, guys. But I figured the natural place to start with this one is the first time we saw the films. The film, specifically. Because, I mean, I don't, I don't know about you guys, but it, it was a it was a big one for me because it was my first one. And, and I like to think I have a fun story around that one anyway. But I don't really remember hearing your guys' first times watching Aliens. So, AJ, go on, start us off. Okay. Well, first, I just want to say happy anniversary, aliens. In regards to first experience, this is probably going to sound funny, but I actually owe my first experience with aliens to my dad being horny. I think to Aaron and Eric, mm-hmm. I think you guys call it Randy in the UK. Horny works in the UK as well. Don't worry. <laughs> All right. All right. In the mood. I, I've already got a feeling for where this story is going. 
AJ, here's the telly. Don't worry about the creaking upstairs. <laughs> uh, don't get ahead of uh, me, but yeah, that's that's pretty much it. We'll go with Eric's. We'll just say that my first aliens experience is owed to my father being in the mood. So my mother and father divorced when I was very young. They both had joint custody over me, and every other weekend I stayed with my father. But this often meant... I stayed in random apartments because my father was quite the ladies' man. And what he would do is take me to a woman's house, set me up in the living room, pillow and blanket on the couch, while he and his lady would lock themselves in the bedroom and shag, as you Brits like to say. <laughs> do we need to call child services a good few years too late for you? <laughs> it's too late and the damage has been done. Good God. But there was one particular woman that I really liked, and uh, he did too because he eventually married her. But I loved going to her house because she had a VCR and premium cable. She had HBO, Showtime, The Works. Now, my parents didn't have these channels, so this gave me access to all sorts of movies I didn't or was not permitted to see, especially late at night. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But one of those nights, and I don't remember the year, I checked a TV guide, which was printed in a weekly booklet back then. And it's like a little tiny magazine. And I couldn't be more excited because Aliens was coming on. You know, I was already able to watch a friend's VHS copy of Alien 1979 before this point. So I was already familiar with the egg, face hugger, chest burser, uh, life cycle, acid for blood, the Ripley character. And I remember seeing commercials and hearing great things about aliens. So I was ready to hit the ground running. So I popped in a blank video cassette into that VCR, pressed record, and no lines with bed squeaking noises coming from the next room. I experienced aliens and it was glorious. I mean, this, and this was the um, theatrical cut, mind you, and I'm sure we'll get into which version of the film we prefer and why. But as a kid, I found this film exciting, thrilling, terrifying, just a pulse pounding experience from beginning to end. And I probably watched that VHS copy a hundred times, maybe even more than that until I got my hands on an official copy as I got older. But I loved it then as I love it now. James Cameron crafted perhaps the most perfect sequel other than Predator 2, of course. Um, and to me, it rivals Empire Strikes Back. It rivals Cameron's own Terminator 2 Judgment Day. I mean, the way it connects to the events perfectly with the first film, but doesn't repackage the experience and re-deliver it. No, it presents us entirely, an entirely new experience while simultaneously expanding the world introduced in the first Alien film. And it's magnificent. You have your horror film and you have your war horror film. And Alien's book ended Ripley's arc so well that I can never watch Alien 3 or Alien Resurrection again and totally be satisfied with her story. Ripley returned and faced her fears. She went back to LV-426 and did what she couldn't do in Alien. She saved people, saved people she cared about. She saved Hicks. And against all odds, she saved Newt, the lone survivor of Hadley's hope and a mirror, younger version of herself, the last survivor of the... Nostromo. And dare I say, the pacing, 
the acting, the casting, the score. Aliens, to me, was executed even better than the film that spawned it. I love Ridley's Alien and would give that film a 9 or a 9.5, but not many films earn a perfect score from me, a perfect 10, but Aliens is one of those films. I just love it. Pretty glowing review. <laughs> well, I can't I can't expect to hear much bitching and moaning in uh, in this episode, to be honest. No. I hope not. Eric, why don't you uh, take us next? I think it was my first ever podcast episode that I was asked about this. Please don't go back and listen to it. I was a lot more embarrassing to listen to then. Hmm, what happened? Well, I'm one of those who watched Aliens before Alien. I think I'd read the book, the Alan Dean Foster book of Alien. That's right. I I read the novelization of Alien, and that was like a boot fair thing at school back then, Um, either middle or high school. I think it was middle school, actually. And... I do remember, I've I've mentioned this before, the night before I watched Aliens for the first ever time, I had that weird dream that I was on a boat in the ocean and there was this decapitated head that rolled up out of the water. And then I watched Aliens the next night and I realized it was literally the the face and the head of the colonist that was cocooned. So it's it's weird. It's like a foreshadowing thing for me. But I, I watched Aliens and back then I was really into natural history. So the alien creature was very much about like the life cycle of insects sex and all the rest of it. I was, I was like, wow, somebody's actually put that into a film. That's great. But yeah, first time I watched Aliens, I was pretty much blown away by everything within it. And this was in the time before there was an internet. This was back in the time of videotapes. In fact, I think my first time watching it would have been, yeah, it would have been recorded off the TV. So I'm one of those who's my first exposure to Aliens was the version where it's got a lot of the swearing dubbed out famously with some oddness. And for a long time, the longest time, I actually thought a lot of the dialogue was that. And I didn't realize it until I came to watch the actual VHS copy that you buy in a shop because I'd recorded it off the TV. And it was often back then, me and my friends, whenever they used to come around to my house, we always said, well, what would what we do? Oh, we'll watch Aliens. It was always Aliens. And sometimes it's Predator. Sometimes it's Terminator. Seven out of 10 times, typically it was Aliens. Oh, we were really into it. But for some reason, it was like the whole thing. And when you're little, well, not little, but, you know, a lot younger, you do want to go like fast forward into the action stuff and that. Like you can watch a James Bond film, but you remember the the action sequences in a James Bond film. This film, we just wanted to watch the whole way through. Yeah, that was probably on on air tv recording was my first time watching it i was completely blown away by i loved everything about it and then because of aliens i wanted to watch alien i'd read the alan dean foster novelization and that one quite disappointed me by contrast because i was looking forward to a lot of the scenes in the book which weren't in the actual film but yeah aliens was my first sort of like the beginning of my love affair with the alien series and it wasn't long after that that one of my yeah one of the kids in the same class he brought in the I think it was issue five or six of the Dark Horse Aliens comic which was starting to come out then so I was like oh wow they're doing comics of it the, and then soon after that they there was the Terminator comic so it kind of brought me in 
a very swift introduction to that sort of adult world of mature creature features as opposed to the old B movies that were like giant ants and things back then. Because that's what I had up until that point. And then something like Aliens, and I think possibly I'd seen Predator before that. But Aliens and Predator and the Terminator, that's like the holy trinity. So at that point, it was my baptism of fire into this kind of continuity but there was no fandom on the internet because didn't have the internet there there was nothing like that back then and i think i got hr giga's giga's alien book that has all that amazing concept i got that out of the library and i kept on getting it out of the library <laughs> but yeah aliens was the one that got me into that and I think it wasn't too long after that that Kenner started bringing out their action figures and stuff, but it was afterwards. So, yeah, it was. I have to absolutely agree with everything AJ said about it. You don't realize it when you're at that age, but when you grow up, you start to realize a lot of it is about the performances. The biggest thing about it, because I rewatched it again today, is absolutely the pacing. And it gets a lot of stick for being, oh, James Cameron, he just treats it as cannon fodder and it's just pyrotechnics. It's a slow burn, man. It's I think even the theatrical cut was about an hour before they get to the nest sequence, but he knows how to break it up into little red herrings and things that it keeps it compelling. You don't realise that at the time, but it's it's just one of those things. It's a, one of those rare films that hooks you and it doesn't let go. And we will probably say it's one of the it's the most popular in the franchise, but I think it's worth saying it's probably one of the most influential films in cinema history. You look at the kind of things, the pop culture impact, the the game design that has tried to emulate Aliens, Predator 2 also tried to emulate as you know the marine cameras and that. So much has come after Aliens in a way that wasn't quite the case for Alien. Aliens has come to influence so much in society, even some actual military hardware and stuff. But yeah, it, it, it had such a profound... I think it had more of a profound influence on someone like me who didn't have the internet. It was just that sort of looking through a straw thing. You had to just rewind and rewatch the film because I didn't have the comics. All that stuff came afterwards. So you had to just rewatch the film. And every single time it was an enjoyable experience. I, I can't say I wore it out but I'm pretty sure that videotape was getting there by the end of it. Me, my friends, we all absolutely fell in love with this film. And it, it introduced us to that concept of not just a creature feature, but doing a creature feature in a mature, believable, and above all else, relatable fashion. Adam, how about you? Were you also a uh, Aliens baby? Yeah, Aliens was also the first one that I watched. I have a number of memories when I was really young in terms of fascination with the Alien franchise before I ever watched the movies themselves. I think one of the first times was I was a kid and in my elementary school library, there was a movie storybook of the first Alien. Now, what this was doing in an elementary school library, I have no idea because it did have pictures that were like the gory scenes and stuff. I managed to track down and find this book and it's on my shelf. So I still need to upload that because I think the publisher is, is done for now. So it would be nice to to share that. But anyway, that was one of my first times. That was the first film that movie storybook was on. So it was one of my first times just reading this book that I was way too young for and being totally fascinated by it. 
And I must have asked my parents once at the time. And of course, they were like, no, when I was that young. But I just had a number of, of other things. Like when I was a kid, there was a toy store in our malls here. You probably remember these stores. Voodoo was KB Toys. And they had the Kenner Aliens figure. They had a number of exclusives as well from what yeah. I remember. Yeah, it was a great store. It was a great store, man. I'm still sad about that one going under. But my first one was the Flying Queen Alien. I think. And I must have seen the the EVP Capcom arcade at some point or, or whatnot. I don't know if I played it until later, but I just have these memories of like seeing it before I actually watched the movie. Another one was the Planet Hollywood restaurant. I think I went there back when there were more of those restaurants. I think they're just kind of barely hanging on now, but it used to be a bigger national chain and they would have all these movie props and stuff in the restaurants. And I remember one had the Marine armor and there was an image that went with it that was all the Marines huddled around the facehugger tubes. I don't know if you guys did this when you were young too, but I, when I went to like Blockbuster, when I went to the video rental stores, I would always look at the VHS cases of movies that I was way too young to watch and look at the back of them and look at the pictures and be like, well, man, someday I'm going to watch this. This looks crazy. And I'll always remember that striking VHS cover for Aliens that was just the head in, in one of the hands. I don't think that ever was a poster. I think that was only for the VHS. Yeah, it's a special edition. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of the green, like, just eerie looking. And it's got a weird sort of, it's not a hand, is it? It's like a weird sort of tail tip or something. That's what I thought too, but it actually is the hand. I can show you the image that they okay. It's just kind of a bad. Somebody figured it out and got the Photoshop also. Yeah. yeah. But regardless, the vibe of that blue glow behind the alien and how it's just such a dark head creeping in. Like I knew I wanted to watch that movie. And so I believe it wasn't the first R-rated movie I, I had seen. I think my dad was just like, hey, you want to watch Terminator 2? And I must have been either almost a teenager or just barely a teenager. And I was like, sure. So I think Terminator 2 was the first R-rated movie I ever watched. I, I loved it. That was always a softer rated R, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. And I think I used that as an excuse. Like, okay, I've watched Terminator 2. I, I can watch Aliens now, right? And I, I think I still remembered that book of the first movie. And so I kind of, I knew the plot of the first movie. I didn't know the plot of the second movie, which is why I think I wanted to watch the second movie first. So there was this grocery store that was about a mile away from my house. And I, I used to like ride my bike there when I was a kid. And I would get a video rental, watch it, and then return it the next day. And I got Alien and Aliens. I watched Aliens first. And I think either the next day or maybe that same day I watched Alien right after. And yeah, it blew me away. Like I, I loved that movie. I was instantly a fan after that. Then I got into the games. I got into the, the EVP games. But I mean, I grew up in kind of a more uh, religious little town. So I don't think there were any of any of my friends. It's it's a bit more modern now, but it was it was almost well, it was pretty rural when I was young, I guess. So I don't think many of my friends were fellow alien fans, which is probably why I turned to the internet to find people like you to talk to about it. But yeah, I remember it, it got me into the games, it got me into the comics. And then once we started hearing the rumors of the AVP film, because I had just gone through and watched all of them, then Alien 3. At the time, I was really disappointed with Alien 3 the first time I saw it. And Alien Resurrection, I thought was even worse. And I've gained way more of an appreciation for both of those through the years. The Predator films, I didn't see, I think, until a year after. I believe my parents thought they were more violent than the Alien films. And I think maybe they were right. Well, maybe not with Alien Resurrection and Alien 3. But anyway. I think with the whole skull cleaning stuff, it was probably Predator was probably a bit more notorious for that. Yeah. Yeah. 
But aliens, now having watched them all countless times, I can't pick a favorite between the first and second film because I love both of them so much. I love how they have totally different vibes about them. But the second film, just like the original Predator, it has a lot of interesting genre crossing. Like it has dark, tense, horrific moments, but it also has action-packed moments. It has great character scenes. And yeah, it's made its mark in movie history for sure. I mean, that I believe that maybe with the exception of Star Wars, I don't know how many Academy Award nominations that one got, but it was up there. It was the first time uh, we had a Best Actress nomination for a sci-fi film, I believe. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, yeah, and I, I must have watched it just countless times as a kid. And then I, I remember getting the first DVD set, The Alien Legacy, was the first one I got. And that's when I just dove in, even more so when the quadrilogy came out. Just all those movies, just watching them over and over and over again. But it was it was on VHS originally. And it wasn't, I think it was the uh, theatrical, but I did also watch the special edition on VHS. I think that was... I'm not sure when the special edition VHS came out, but I think I saw it somewhere else and I watched it. I think it came out on Laserdisc first. HBO and then Laserdisc. It's 1990 special edition came out. On VHS. Okay, then I watched it. I swear it aired on television first. Well, there, there must have been another release for the VHS because I remember in the previews on the VHS for the special edition, they had a trailer for Rebellion's AVP on PC. You know what I'm talking about, Voodoo. Do you remember this VHS? I think so. I think so. Because yeah. I, I believe that's one of the first times I saw that game was Rebellion's AVP on PC was was in the trailers on the VHS releases. And this one was like a green case for the special edition of Aliens. According to Xenopedia, the extended cut originated with the film's broadcast debut on CBS in 1989. Hey, I'm right. You I get out of this chicken shit outfit. <laughs> But it wasn't it wasn't the full restore with all the deleted scenes. Everything else would then be put together in the Alien Special Collector's Edition Laserdisc in '91. Then the VHS. There was a VHS, but it doesn't give a date for that. I I remember going to the um, video rental store just around the corner. You know the ones that sort of sold food and stuff as well, and yeah. going, oh, they got a special edition in. Well, maybe it was a VHS re-release because I know they they used to put previews in the beginning of the VHS, and that one always caught my eye. I believe they had one for Predator in there too. But yeah, Aliens, even though I can't pick a favorite between Alien and Aliens, I think Aliens is where my heart is at, I think, because that was the original one that that had me, even though seeing Alien was a big part of what drew me to the, the second film, seeing seeing it in that book. So while I can't pick a favorite between the first two, I just love Aliens, man. I just love that movie. I will just chime in here and say, while you've been saying that, it did remind me of one of the... Um elements of aliens that drew me in back then was because my father he was an he was an engineer in the royal air force and so that the military part which i'm sure we're going to come on to but i think that was also a big part for me of going oh wow they're, they're doing a, a convincing thing of soldiers it's just it's not just like random extras holding guns i think that really was a big part of what drew me in as well yeah, I think it was the first realistic sci-fi depiction of soldiers yeah. in space because it beat Starship Troopers to the punch. I'm not sure. I guess Starship sure Troopers is a bit more, uh, I guess, cartoonish, part satire. Maybe I don't know. It was still kind of realistic, but uh, well, we no. could go there. But <laughs> we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Yeah, but... the book. The book was good, but the film adaptation was not. The book was a lot more serious than the film. The film was. 
satire by Paul Bear. The film's its own thing. But <laughs> yes. Yeah. But we could get in there after we hear. Wait, uh, so, so which of us watched the second film first? Eric, you did. I did. So we all did? No. No, I, I did. Oh, you know. watched Alien. Yeah, I, uh, a naughty friend of mine was able to uh, get a hold of his dad's VHS. And Did that involve like, a sexual encounter too? <laughs> no, okay. no. But I, tell you, I tell you, the thing was treated like porn. It was like smuggled, <laughs> it was secret. Literally. We can't can't tell our parents, you know, yeah. that kind of thing that we're watching this and it was nice. watched in secret. So no, I did actually get to see Alien first, and that was that was really gory. It's funny, you know, you mentioned that Predator might have been gory. Which think about the chestburster, right? Whew. Yeah, the first, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But let's hear about Aaron's first experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, don't, don't you know, forget about me. It's fine. It's all good. <laughs> but to, to be fair, I've probably told this one um, a couple of times over the years anyway, but it is, it is one I re- I'm really fond of because I, I remember it so specifically as well because it didn't start with Aliens, the film. It was the day before my fifth birthday. Negligence on a parent's part as well, like AJ's. Let me interject. So you saw it younger than any of us. Yeah. By I guess. Far, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Day before my fifth birthday. Wow. The family takes me to, uh, we had a theme park in the Midlands over here called American Adventure. And it was stereotypical cowboys and Indians, Western kind of thing. But they had a, like a motion controlled cinema. And I remember queuing up for it and there's Indian chiefs and cowboys head and all busts at the top of this, this building. What year would this have been? 94. Okay. I think it would have been 94. But there's also a statue of an alien hanging over the entrance to this cinema. I can't remember anything else in the lead up to it. I just remember going in there, sitting in this motion ride that was apparently based on aliens. Because for the longest time, I thought I'd made this up. I thought this was a memory that I just completely fabricated. We get out of it and my dad says to me, I've got the film that this this thing was based on. It turned out what I'd been in to see was a motion ride called Aliens Ride at the Speed of Fright. And thank God to Charles Delosarica for proving that I wasn't insane and made this up because all that footage was on the anthology Blu-ray. But yeah, so dad says, I've got the film that was based on. Do you want to watch it when we get home? So <laughs> this also sort of collides with another one of my fandoms because it was also the night that Star Trek Voyager premiered on UK television. So I was brought up a Trekkie. So in the ad breaks, we were watching Aliens on VHS, flicking between the two. And we got to the Hive sequence and I shit my pants. I was like, I cannot watch this anymore. Please turn it off. Let's just finish watching Voyager. <laughs> you go from between two extremes yeah. there. And for five years, I was absolutely fucking terrified of aliens. Terrified. But it was that sort of morbid fascination kind of thing with it. I say five years because I, I know again what age I was when I actually watched it all the way through. And I slept face down in my bed for those five years because my logic was that while my chest was against the mattress, a chestburster wouldn't be able to get out. So if I was infected, it couldn't get out and I couldn't die. And you certainly had the most traumatic introduction of this franchise. <laughs> yeah, it's often a question that comes up in social media. You know, if you're a parent, how young should you introduce your kids? So if anyone's thinking of it, here's a prime example of don't do that. <laughs> yeah, not for a five-year-old. No. Here's the thing. I don't think I would be anywhere near the kind of fan I was 
if it wasn't for that morbid fascination. Because I spent all those years obsessed with this fear. Hmm. Like, I tried again to watch... I, it took me years to convince him to let me watch it again when I was... 25. <laughs> <laughs> I think seven, maybe seven. I thought you said it was five years later. Hang on. Yeah. Seven. <laughs> because I remember being in infant school. Because I used to be obsessed with it in infant school as well. I'd be drawing my own stick aliens with the big long heads and the tails. Oh, and wow. The kids. What a life your teachers must have had. Yeah. Why is this child drawing people <laughs> exploding their chests? <laughs> one, one one of the other kids in school had the Kenner figures. And it was like, oh, can you bring them in? I'd love to see them. And my dad was playing Alien Trilogy. At this point, when we got a Sega Saturn for the first time, and I remember hiding behind the settees trying to watch, trying to get the nerves to watch him play these games. I wouldn't dare pick up the box for the game because the alien on the cover just terrified me. But I wanted so badly to look at it. And it was the same for... We, we, my mother brought me a magazine. I can't remember what, for the life of me, what it was called, but it was like a horror-themed magazine where it would be like some classic horror stories, you know, Frankenstein and Dracula and stuff like that. And then urban myth kind of stories, like the guy with the hook for a hand who came and got the car and there'd be profiles on things like banshees and vampires and Bigfoot and stuff like that. And the very first issue of that, I would have been about seven or eight again for this. And the very first issue of it, it was. It also had profiles of movie monsters. It was aimed. It was aimed at kids, really. But the profile on the back of the magazine was in the very first issue was Alien, and it was that shot from Alien Three, that promo shot. And I remember that being on the back of there as well. And I just, I, I was too terrified. I wanted so badly, but I was too terrified. Which is that the one with Ripley and the alien face to face? Or no, no, just the um, just the promo shot of the runner coming out of like the the, the clouds kind of thing. Mm. I'll send it you after. Yeah. But it wasn't until I was 10 that I actually got to watch the film all the way through. And again, this, this was, it was my father. And I always used to have a bad habit of walking into it. My dad had a, a, a man cave as long as I've known him, basically. And I'd always just used to walk in, see what he's doing. What are you playing? You playing Doom? You playing Doom Nukem? What film are you watching? And my dad had a, back when it was not really a common thing, you know, he'd specifically gone out and brought a, a multi-region DVD player because back then, you know, when DVDs were coming out, America got everything like a year ahead of the UK. So I remember walking in one day and he was just putting aliens on. I saw what it was, about turned, quickly got the hell out of there. And he goes, no, you didn't swear at me. No, get back in here. You're going to watch this. And I was not terrified. I was absolutely obsessed because I also remember we, I didn't get to watch it all in one go because back then I, I did sports. You wouldn't think it now looking at me. But back then, <laughs> used to do like kids football and stuff like that. And that day I had to go to football and I did not want to go to football. I just wanted to stay home and watch this film. From that point on, it wasn't terrified interest. It was an obsession it was just obsession from that point forward it was just obsession and i remember after we were done because i'd, I'd got bits and pieces over the years of, and learned bits and pieces of what happened in the films it sounds like we can really credit your father yeah well like i said it was it was you know a bit of parental <laughs> neglection there but mine was indirectly there eric <laughs> <laughs> 
Just like Ripley, you had to go back and face your nightmares. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And funny thing was, after we'd finished Aliens, it was like, come watch Alien 3 now. And I remember him going, are you sure? It's not very good. <laughs> I, I, I've loved Alien 3 since the first time I watched it. I really appreciate a lot of what it does, even for all its flaws. I guess I'm just a bit of a downer kid uh, <laughs> all the time, but... I remember the VHS he had as well because it was it was the poster with Ripley holding new and on the back of it was a behind the scenes shot as well of of James Cameron in his in his sweater directing um, Sigourney and the Hive because for ages I didn't have a bloody clue what that was supposed to be <laughs> like who's this dude I don't remember this in the film you were waiting for him to show up. <laughs> I had to tape a copy before I actually had my own copy. So I, I think Dad eventually gave me his VHS version. He definitely gave me his copy of Predator. I remember that. But I don't think he gave me Aliens. And I had to try and find it on telly and tape it off it. Aliens Special Edition was on Sky One, of all places. And I remember finally getting to tape that, which would have been probably towards the end of second. Uh, junior school so 11 i remember that yeah the sky they had the special edition on sky i remember seeing that in the guide and they had it on quite a lot actually for some mm. weird reason yeah and i oh i wore that tape out as well i used to take that everywhere with me because you know when you used to go and stay at, like your grandparents house or stuff like that you know i'd bring that with me and uh, watch that countless times but yeah so i always find it interesting for me because you don't consider aliens to be the the horror one i mean yes there's horror elements but alien is distinctly the more horror of of the series so for that fear to play such a part in my memory of aliens i find really interesting because as, as an adult you know and as a teen i started to appreciate a lot more of the action elements of it i'm, I'm not hugely knowledgeable in like all the real military stuff and all the stuff like that but i'm interested in it so a lot of what aliens does with all the gun porn and the military depiction and, and the colonial marines is one of the things i really love about that film as well you know especially growing up <laughs> again dad playing doom and duke nuke and again from the age of five i have an appreciation for the shooters and stuff like that and that's the genre that i'm mainly interested in as an adult and then things like aliens influencing halo because Halo is one of my big interests now. You know, it's it's Aliens and Predator. It's Stargate, Star Trek, Halo. So it has really... Aliens was so influential on a lot of things. On a lot of things, whether that's aesthetic, whether that's some of the narrative elements, whether that's character sort of tropes and stereotypes. Even before Halo, when they did the Warhammer game Space Hulk, and they brought that, mm -hmm. and that was literally just the CRT monitors of the Marines that you were controlling, and everybody was saying, oh, it's, it's aliens, it's aliens, it's aliens. And, and it's one of those things where everybody knows if you've tried to emulate aliens, everybody knows, oh, you got that from aliens, but nobody minds, because it, it's it's just got that formula down so well. Well, I mean, aren't the Tyranids essentially aliens and the yeah, they started Marines. off that with the Gene Stealers, but then they sort of like way went over to pure Lovecraftian stuff. But yeah, the, initially, yeah, very much. I think actually probably it's more Imperial Guard that are more like the uh, Colonial Marines, but yeah. But yeah, that is that is a really good story, Aaron. I mean, I don't think Aliens gets enough recognition for the horror elements yes, that it has. Absolutely, yeah. Also, the, the interesting thing of being like having fascination paired with fear when you're young, 
like not to get into other things too much, but like for me, it was, I remember the Indiana Jones ride at Disneyland. I was so scared of that thing, but I was also really fascinated by the temple. And my parents just had to like push me like, no, come on, we're doing this. We're doing this. And and then I couldn't get enough of it. And it was the same with roller coasters. I was so afraid of roller coasters. And as soon as I got on one, I couldn't get enough of it. And so it's, it's interesting that aliens was kind of like that for you. For years, you had this fascination of something that you were also very fearful of, like actually psychologically impacted you, but you still, you were drawn to it at the same time. So that is really interesting yeah it, it wasn't like that for us i think because we didn't see it that young so yeah it was still scary though it was still scary and I, that's where i think some fans have criticized aliens unfairly for quote unquote like dropping the horror element and just switching to an action movie because to me uh aliens has a level of horror that matches the horror films of its time like from nightmare on elm street to halloween you know the movie scares audiences it amplifies tension and anyway action always seems to be a natural extension of horror anyway if you look at the end of films like Halloween, Alien, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the quicker pace, the running away, the fighting back. These are action traits. And there's a bridge between both genres that fit like a glove. I've often said Aliens is, except for Lambert's demise, Aliens pretty much recreates the same stuff. I mean, I, I often say Kane's chest bursting moment is what got a lot of the hype, but the the sort of fake out red herring, almost chest burster scene that Ripley has at the start of Aliens, I've often said that's better choreographed with the cat hissing, which I think might have been influenced yeah. from Brett. You have the cage, you have that dripping honey quality to the James Horner score, which plays over it. It's a lot more tense than Kane. And with Kane's, it comes out. You don't see it come out with Ripley. But I would say hers is more, it's way more effective than Kane's was to me. And you say, oh, there's no blood. And go, well, you look through the whole hive scene. There's blood on the floor all through that. You said the chest burster thing and that, that's a bit over with quicker regarding Kane's one. But Everything about that, the whole thing where her eyes snap open and she's begging to be killed and it turns into chaos. It's way more effective, I think, than except for Lambert. Lambert's death is the only one that Aliens doesn't get. But even there, you have like when Newt gets abducted and you have the motion tracker of the alien getting close and close and then this thing just rears up behind her like this ethereal nightmare come to life. That's strong psychological stuff and even the stuff where it's nothing's happening but Ripley slowly looks around and you see the ovipositor produce an egg and it pans up to the queen and it's this grotesque majesty about it that the closest alien comes to that is more when you're looking at the space jockey scene so you get parallels but I've, I've often said aliens never stints on the horror even when they're just looking through the colony and you see these like half-eaten donuts and you're starting especially with a special edition because you see life in the colony you're starting to realize this looks like an actual war zone this isn't like star wars this looks like people's lives there has been an, like a miniature apocalypse here and when you get to that stuff with the hive scene 
nothing's happening, but you see these sort of dead bodies contorted in these grotesque poses, and they're locked in this death rictus of agony. And you just see Apone, who's the most serious-minded of all the Marines, and he just looks up and he just... He has that really powerful moment where it's not, it's just, holy shit, but he's... Al Matthews, he sells that line so well. It's just that dawning horror, and you come to realise this is a guy. He's seen war more than the other Marines have seen, and yet he's looking up at this, and this is pure horror for him. There's a lot of that throughout the whole film. I think there's a lot of subtlety yeah. in, in Aliens that works really well for emphasising things. And it's not, it's not like done for the sake of gore. It's tastefully done. You mentioned the motion tracker. Just the sound of the motion tracker creates so much tension. Cameron was so smart not to have music during that. Yeah. And you just hear the sound of the tracker and them getting closer, and it creates so much tension. Even with when Ripley is going to find Newt at the end. I've said this before, but she's going off to find Newt at the end of the film, and you have that tracker that Newt's wearing. And I noticed that, and also the uh, motion tracker sounds, even when it's just doing the beat sound. I realized later on that it's actually it's stimulating a heartbeat. And because it's getting quicker and quicker and quicker, you don't realize it, but the average viewer is going, why am I feeling this is getting more tense? And nothing's happening. Nothing's happening for like minutes, yeah. but you're just feeling this. Dun, dun, dun. And it's the same technique that Spielberg used for Jaws with the music. Da-da. Well, I wonder if that was intentional because that's the way the technology worked in those days. I did a whole lot um, assignment in college about that, picking on using those sound effects to mimic and, and manipulate heartbeats and stuff like that and looking into it. It was really interesting. And, and you know, you were saying as well, Eric, about the, the gore thing. You know, Jim made a point of saying, you know, gore does not equal horror, it equals disgust. He's very right. He switches away the camera to see reactions, but because the reactions are so plausible and convincing, you're totally so That does half the work on selling you on the special effects. Definitely. And again, the, spe- the special effects and all that stuff are brilliant as well. That was one of the things that was nominated for an Oscar for, yeah. Yeah, especially Ripley's Shed. Like, I was watching it earlier today, and I was thinking, I wonder if it's still a fit. But I still believe that is Sigourney Weaver's abdomen. It looks exactly like... It doesn't look like you typically got in the 19... Like, in The Terminator, and you have, like, Arnold's fake head looking in the mirror, and you have that slightly fake-looking arm when he's doing the surgery. And that was Stan Winston as well. But in Aliens... It literally looks like her abdomen. Something's coming through it. And this was before CGI. This is, In fact, it speaks a lot to how convincing it is, because if you remember a, a few years ago, Ridley Scott justified how much CGI he had in Covenant by saying, oh, yeah, even aliens had digital effects. And we were all like, <laughs> what? <laughs> Didn't have that's, just, that's just how good the effects were. I yeah. think pre-CGI, this was a perfect melding of, of different movie effects. I mean, you had the strong practical effects like you just mentioned, Eric, with the chestburster scene right at the start. But also all the miniature and work yeah. in that movie was it was insane. And how well they cut between that and full-size props, like even just the APC driving through the atmosphere processor. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize until later that a lot of that was just miniature work. 
because it looked so good. It's the same thing with the queen fight with Ripley. I think when I was young, I was like, whoa, how did they do that with that full size queen? Like I didn't even realize a lot of that was miniatures and beyond that, like rear and front projection and all that. I think that's the only time the film shows its age. The rear and front projection, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it kind of does with the dropship crash a little bit. And and a bit with the, the pyrotechnics. Yeah, the and with the dropship yeah. going through the clouds, that bit has definitely aged a little bit. For its time, I don't think they could have done it better. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I don't think it shows its age. be honest with you, I struggle more, and I love both films. I struggle more with Ash's melted face than I do the dropship, you know? <laughs> well, it's the, it's the thing where it goes between Ian Holmes' head and it just snaps to the fake head, and yeah. also the one where it's the dummy alien just floating outside the sh- escape shuttle. To be clear, that's more yeah, fake. I'm just banging and clanging. I only mean a couple shots in the dropship descent. I only mean the shots initially when it goes into the clouds. When you're behind the dropship, it's and the cloud foliage is a little jumpy. But that whole sequence is part of that great build of that movie, the dropship sequence and how long that takes. I was listening to the commentary again recently on the Blu-ray and James Cameron said, yeah, I don't think they, they let you do these kind of slow builds anymore in movies these days. And that movie had just the perfect slow build. And the dropship scene was part of that. Entering the atmosphere, the conversations going on, circling the complex, Ripley looking at the facility and trying to see what's going on here. Also, the excellent model work there of the dropship just landing and the APC driving out of it. There's so much of the build is just that scene, I think, the descent to the planet. Well, it's brilliant world building as well because it brings you into the the expanded world, you know, outside of Alien. You know, this yeah. this whole the whole imagery as well, you know, and the production design of it all because that influences so much else of the the series, you know, outside of the films. There's there's so much going off there that just reels you in, and you're interested in the aesthetic, you're interested in the background, you're interested in the world that he's building as well as this, you know, this incline and his roller coaster of of pacing. So there's there's lots going on there. To to keep you interested without having the alien there. I think a lot of it is down to basically Cameron didn't approach it like a science fiction film. He approached it like he's doing a war movie, which just happens to be set in the future. Before that, it was basically Star Wars and the original Alien. But this was the first time where you got a war movie, which was every bit as convincing as something like Battle of Britain, but it just happened to be set in the future. And it was realistic, plausible hardware. And that, a lot of that really helped to sort of bring you into the way it would, it, a lot of it sucking the audience in because up to that point, especially back then, they're not used to a science fiction film being this relatable, except for probably Alien. And this was like, Alien was just a small crew and this was colonists and soldiers. And even back on Gateway, there's a lot of stuff on in Gateway just down to the medical stuff and that they just look like ordinary hospital folk you would see in the same way that the Nostromo crew seemed like, you know, truck drivers and that, oil rig people. That was a big key for what grabbed people into it back then. One of the things I thought that was interesting with with the commentary I listened to again is how Cameron commented that he didn't show a lot of the space station and he wanted it to be very utilitarian, not fantastical in terms of people wearing crazy sci-fi outfits or anything. It was just people in suits in a boardroom and stuff like that. 
I do wish we would have gotten to see more of that like everyday life part of Alien, more of the space station, more of the utilitarian like environments for for societies. But I, he wanted to keep the focus on that towards where we were going, towards the colony on this other planet. Those would be the really interesting elements there. But we did get a bit more of that with this special edition, I think, with Ripley sitting in, in the room with the screen in the park. And it's like this therapeutic room, I guess. And you would think they would have stuff like that in space stations and spaceships. That's got to be a thing nowadays, hasn't it? I was watching earlier. It is. They've started to actually bring that into real life now, therapy rooms that are just like yeah. that. Once I saw it on a, like a TV program saying, this is the new thing, I thought James Cameron totally called that because it was back then. And, it, and also smart guns are another thing that he did back then and they're bringing in now. You know, it was like AJ was saying earlier, I think, you know, the things that he was, I think it was AJ, you know, the things that Cameron did that then became something that started to be looked at in real life, you know, the concept of the auto-targeting, the, the stabilization, that seems to always be something that's cropping up. I saw something recently about a third arm that one of the militaries was playing with that basically just held an ordinary rifle and yeah. was just stabilized. Uh, the power loader. Yeah. There, but they don't, they actually have them at US Navy yards. They've brought them in in the last couple of... They, they don't look exactly the same as a power loader, yeah. but it's very functional. Someone gets in it and it's an exoskeleton, yeah. I mean, Japan's been playing with stuff like that for their factory workers and things mm-hmm. like that. So, I mean, didn't Cameron even patent the, the concept <laughs> of the, uh, the steady rig as well? So he's... Yeah. I mean, people money. like to talk of... Um, Oh, is it Sid or is it Ron? Well, they talk about one of the concept artists as being like a futurist. I think it's Sid. Probably Sid made, yeah. You know, and, and, and visualising the future and how it would work. And, and James is just 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 as good at doing that. Yeah, He's better than everybody. I well, think. The, yeah. the guy who made the power loader, he said that a lot of the time what you would probably have got was a film director or producer coming in and telling him, okay, we just want a walking forklift. And he said, what happened with James Cameron, he would come in and say, I want a, full, a walking forklift and I want these nuts and bolts to look like this shape. And he he's not like someone who's just got an ego for the hell of it. He's got it because he's earned it. He could literally take over the departments because he had the skill for it. Yeah, he... um. Even in his other movies, like Terminator, like Stan Winston did a million designs for the endoskeleton and they ended up going back to James Cameron's design because it was the superior design. And the endoskeleton we see on in the film is his work. And I think even James Cameron was like fixing like the uh, Soloco ship, right? Yes, yes. So Sid Mead did a circular thing to start with and Jim's like, nope, because you're going to mess with the camera focus. Here, oh, yeah. I want it to look like this. It's a gun in space. And that's the direction that... That said, took the Sulaco. He always seems that he could do everyone's job better. And that's what keeps being repeated and repeated in the different yeah. crews he works with, except for acting. He can't act. So that's the only thing he can't do. <laughs> Except even 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 in some movies, he's he's acted. His, you've heard his voice. I think he's even done a good job like that. I mean, like he leaves a message for Sarah Connor and the Terminator on the answer machine saying, hey, I can't make this date. And uh, sorry about that. And I'm like, well, he sounds like he can act, too. But um, you guys were mentioning the power loader, I think, and how influential Aliens was to so many things. And it was. But I, I do think in order to celebrate Aliens, we do owe a, uh, a debt of gratitude to Robert Heinlein's 1959 novel, Starship Troopers. The mobile infantry, you know, those base grunts, they were much of what the colonial Marines were derived from and inspired by, and also like Vietnam. The dropship, the term bug hunt. Well, that's a real military term, like bug hunt. I 
don't I know a lot of people have claimed it's from Starship Troopers. I think the military term came from that and he got it from his brother. Let me stop you there that if you go on Strange Shapes, uh, the website, you can see quotes from James Cameron. And he said that if you read Starship Troopers, you'll see where Aliens was inspired. Yes. Yeah. In general. I've yeah. never seen that. I mean, yes, I know the quote. I know the quote and I've always heard him heard about him saying that. But outside of superficial stuff, I've never I've never understood why he would claim because he also said, I don't know why they're making Starship Troopers. I've already made that film. And I never I never understand how he can claim that because everything is so superficial. Yeah, Starship Troopers, the novel, is basically 95% of it is boot camp. Uh-huh. The actual story of Alien, he, he originally came up because he didn't come up with it when he was asked about Alien. It, he'd made a script, he called it E.T., and he, he says, then Spielberg came along and named his film E.T. Mine was slightly different. He renamed it Mother, but in that, the basic stuff was already there. A platoon of high-tech soldiers, he had it set on a terraforming complex on Venus. A mother alien, a climactic battle between an alien queen and a female protagonist in a power loader. He repurposed it for this. So it was actually a story that you'd already had, but it was a lot of that stuff. I think you could say he took elements and ingredients and he extrapolated. But I think the actual story-wise was different to... Oh, Star yeah, not the story-wise, but you got the, the space truckers, now you got the space grunts, you got the mobile infantry. And, and look, James Cameron has a history of this, right? We all know that he took the Terminator story from The Outer Limits. Demon with a glass hand. And lost. We know that uh, James Cameron was sued over Avatar by multiple people. And I think he won either most or all of those lawsuits. But Cameron has this ability to take these ideas and actually make something better out of it. Yeah. And I would say that of the outer limits, that Terminator is so much more superior than that. Yes. But it, to, to James Cameron's credit, he has owned up to it. And he has said that it was much of the inspiration for the colonial Marines going on that bug hunt and the way they behave. So I just I just think it's a good nod, you know, because everything has an inspiration before it. Even Alien, right? Dan O'Bannon took ideas from everywhere. Yeah. I didn't steal from anyone. I stole from everyone. everyone. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm not I'm not saying this as a slight. I'm just giving it a tip of the hat. I know, but um, yeah. I'm just saying it's one of those things I've never quite agreed with him on. But as an interesting aside to that, I've been reading uh, Alan Dean Foster's novelization of Aliens. Of all the novels, I don't tend to revisit this one. And that's because in my head it was always like, oh, there's not really that much difference and the swearing makes it feel... The lack of swearing makes it feel like a kid's thing. But going through it, there's been a lot of interesting differences. And one of the things that I picked up on was on the topic of Starship Troopers, was it seems to give the Marines power armor. quite Maybe not quite to the level that Starship Troopers does, but it, it does refer to some powered armor suits in, in this, which is... There's, there's been quite a few differences in this. I don't know why I don't revisit it more, actually, having now done it. I'm not 100% sure, but I believe that was in some original conceptions of uh, James Cameron's uh, Colonial Marines to give them power armor, armor. But as far as I know, then the power loader became the natural extension of those, you know, troopers battle suits. I don't know. It's it's it, it, it's good to give the nod. I was happy that Cameron did it and Cameron improved it. 
Yeah, I think I think it's possible that you can create things that are very original while still taking a lot of inspiration from previous sure. things. I mean, it's we can't help but being influenced by things that are important to us. I mean, look at George Lucas with Flash Gordon, Star Wars and World War II and all that. But that was still a wholly original thing regardless. And I think I think one of my friends told me never bet against James Cameron. And this movie I I believe made his career probably. It was Terminator before that. Well, Terminator was his first hit and it got him noticed. But I think this is the one that really made his career take off, I believe. This is what cemented it. Terminator was four weeks, number one, I think, in October. And that definitely gave him the opportunity to direct this. Yeah. And then we hear those funny stories where, where is it, Pinewood Studios where they filmed? And yeah, because they, they didn't respect him on, on yeah. set. He had not yet earned that. Uh... And he set up screenings for the Terminator so it would earn him respect and no one would go, uh, according to Cameron. It's worth keeping in mind, um, apparently, the success with the Terminator, because there was a whole kerfuffle. He was had to do Rambo and Terminator. He had to squeeze it into one thing, and he had a lot of disagreements with Stallone with that. The success of the Terminator was what allowed him to stand for, because Fox didn't want to bring Gail Ann Hurd into this as producer. They just wanted Guyler and Hill. And the success of the term, like the financial success of it was what allowed him to say, no, I want Gail Ann Heard on this. And if it wasn't for the Terminator, she wouldn't have been brought on it. And that could have in turn led to a very different film in itself. Yeah, they were a great team. They either got married during Aliens or before Aliens. It was before uh, Aliens. It was before Aliens, yeah. And it's too bad it didn't last. So guys, I need to know. Theatrical cut or special edition? Oh, there's you... no question. Special, special edition. edition. And James Cameron says that's his, his preferred version. What about you, Eric? Okay, I love a lot of the stuff in the special edition. The sentry guns I can take or leave. I really love the colony stuff. And I particularly love that scene with Ripley being told her daughter, I promised I'd see her on her birthday, her 11th, and she just cracked. It's such an emotionally powerful scene, but... The one point I always go on and go, nah, is the fact that Cameron made Newt right there at the start of finding the alien and she's the only survivor. It, f it always feels a little, t I can hand wave it, but it always feels a little too coincidental for her to be right at the start of the first ever encounter and the only survivor and rescued as one of the few remaining survivors at the very end of the film. If it had been just Russ and Ann Jordan and not Newt, I think without question. But it's that little bit makes me go, I wish it had been different. And also the theatrical cut is a little more tense because it doesn't have the sentry gun stuff in it. But I think overall special edition. For me, it plays... I mean, I prefer, I personally find the theatrical cut of Aliens the superior cut. And don't get me wrong, I love some of the scenes, like Adam was saying, the sentry gun. I like the Ripley scene with uh, learning about his daughter passed away, her daughter, but it ended really abruptly. She starts crying, and next thing you know, it's cut to the meeting, yeah. and it's such a jarring cut. If it had been more of a slow segue... Yeah, maybe even a dissolve or a fade. Because she goes from crying to ultra pissed off and serious yes. executives. Yes, I think it's a bad cut. I and mean, then I would have maybe even left on that little extra footage where um, Burke is checking his watch. Or a slow dissolve to the space station and then something. 
Yeah, but why I prefer the theatrical cut kind of, and uh, I'll get this out, Aaron, and then hit you up because this kind of plays into what you usually complain about, Aaron. So I'm surprised you're not on my side. But the, the pacing for the story is perfect for me, right? It's a lean 137 minutes, right? And all the fat is trimmed and it's pure meat. And much of the special edition scenes slog it down for me and are often unnecessary and repetitive. Now, let me explain this. The Hadley's Hope scene. Not only does it feel oddly less engaging like some other person than James Cameron directed it to me, but as interesting as it is to watch, it lessens the impact of the unknown. And this is where Aaron complains when the characters haven't caught up with the audience. And it's true the case here. It works better for a mystery and suspense that after the company lost contact with the colonies on LV-426 that we discover with Ripley and the Marines what happened to the colony? Who and what is the, the story is behind that little mysterious girl and that Burke sent them out to the derelict ship. It's best for the audience to find this information out when the main characters find this out, not ahead of them, not when they are surprised, but we're not surprised, you know, just like wondering who's laying these eggs and saying it must be something we haven't seen yet and leaving the audience with a sense of mystery and fear of the unknown. That's perfect where we find out about the Queen, the same time Ripley does. It's so much better than learning uh, ahead of time about the possibility of a big mama as Vasquez and Hudson discusses it. It spoils the mystery. So that's why it's the it's only the theatrical cut for me. I think it's like the difference between is your favorite film Terminator and Terminator 2. Terminator 2 is much more, you get a lot more in it. But when you rewatch the Terminator, it flows much more, much better. Well, you're also repeating the elements. Why, why not just be surprised? Oh, we lost contact. Let's go out there. And, and the audience doesn't know. But with that extra scene, the audience does know. The yeah. Marines don't know. Ripley knows what it is. We know what it is, regardless of the court. It is the aliens. That's what everybody expects. This is the second film in. You don't know what to expect. I mean, we've seen it a billion times, but I just mean as its own individual experience. I mean, that's why they bring her along. That they fully expect it. You know, Burke led them to the derelict. Well, we don't know it was Burke at that point. It's company orders. If you took that line out about some haunch in a cushy office back on Earth sentenced to the grid court, I think if you took that out, it would help with that. But it was such a good bit of dialogue. <laughs> the same thing. I love that Simpsons and Lidecker patter they got going on. For me, what makes the special edition superior is that scene, is seeing the colony for a bit before they go out there. Now, I know there's a bit more mystery without that, but I think that was an important part of the world building and it makes it, it made it more impactful for me when they get there and everything's desolate and yeah. an aftermath of something that happened. And I just loved seeing that everyday colony life happen and having that connection to the first film, seeing the derelict, seeing the difference in the planet, like this is a different LV-426 than we saw in Alien. It, there's clouds now, there's rain, there's a storm, like something's different here. Having that initial draw you in with this whole other world and seeing a working community in Alien for the very first time, well, beyond just the space station, because we didn't see that much there. Well, we love that, right? As fans, yeah. more content, more content, more yeah. content. So I'm coming at it from, from a fan for sure. As the, the, the makeup of a film, I think the pacing is better and the mystery of unknown is better if they don't foreshadow or that they don't tell us what's going on all in the beginning of the film. 
I just think we've watched it too many times. Sometimes it's hard for us to separate from that. There's something to be said about how well the movie actually works in the theatrical cut. Those scenes aren't to the film's detriment to remove them, but it's it's like the it's, it's like the alien isolation thing. Reviewers bitch and moan a little bit that it's overly long, whereas I'm playing it. I'm like more, more, yeah. more, please. And that's I've the never liked that argument. The whole we need to trim the movie so that we can have more show times in the day. I mean, I get the business aspect of that, but that was the reason they did it. James Cameron didn't want to make those cuts. I do agree that they could have left the queen bit out. Yeah, that lot, that line between Hudson and Vasquez. Yeah, but well, also the whole I mean. Ripley daughter dynamic. Sigourney was pissed about that, and I think that was an important element for her character developing with Newt. Well, that was apparently taken out because I think Cameron said in an interview or somebody quoted some. They said that they thought it might make it too obvious what's going to happen with Ripley bonding with Newt. But when you watch it, you think oh, that's inevitably going to happen anyway. So I think just the emotional gravitas of that, if they have kept any scene in the entire film, I wanted them to have put that scene with her finding out about her daughter because it was just such an emotionally it was very character building for her i get that she's been cut off from yet another element of her past it's the kind of thing that happens with alien 3 but here it it just feels more natural i mean even that whole thing there is a difference between alien and aliens like even at the start of alien you have that slow thing through the nostromo it goes into that womb-like thing of the cryopods in aliens you start out it clangs onto the dock of the salvaged ship you have the welding violently open the door it clangs down by a readouts rule on the green she's alive oh fuck you get that sort of hint of violence subtextually right from the start and i think the whole thing with ripley finding out about her daughter yeah you've had the rug pulled on away from you under your feet again it reinforces that in a way which felt really it added something that i don't think was necessary but it added something that felt like it belonged there except for as you say the segue i don't think it necessarily needed to be there obviously people responded amazingly to this theatrical cut right not just the academy award nominations but the reviews were through the roof and i saw the kingship of that sole survivor you know ripley was that sole survivor and now was this little girl and she survived and that's where i saw the connection i do like the idea of amanda i mean geez we got the game right isolation and the scene like i said is still a little jarring that cut but overall i don't think it was necessary but that isn't my biggest complaint but i do think like i said you're getting the the audience ahead i i I do think look james cameron sometimes is his worst enemy if you guys watch terminator 2 judgment day the special edition there are some things that really should have been still cut and a lot of terminator fans will argue that and even if you look at the end of terminator 2 right he wanted the um old sarah connor coda and Mm. the producers forced him to do that dark road it was retaking footage from going to the cyberdyne building at night, you know, that the future lays out like a dark road or I forget how, how it says. So sometimes Cameron, I think, puts in too much and someone, you know, that's one of his slight weaknesses that he needs to be curbed in. It can happen with directors that are really into world building for sure. Yeah. But I think that's why it's so good for the home releases to have the options and have the multiple yes. cuts. And I still want to see that with other movies in the franchise and the Predator franchise that we haven't had yet. But with Alien, that was what was so great for me with that quadrilogy release was getting two cuts of each film. 
And of course, people are going to have their favorites, like yeah. even with Alien 3, too, and Alien Resurrection, even though I, I think Resurrection is the least impactful alternate version of any of them. But let's not forget that when it was first, because this was one of the earliest things on the internet to do with alien fandom, there was this alien fact, FAQ thing that came out, and it listed yeah. all these changes. When Aliens first came out, it had like the Burke cocoon scene. It had a lot of things which got removed in later cuts. And then in 1990, stuff got added in again. So when it when you're talking about, well, initial reviews, we have to take account of that those initial viewings at the cinemas in some places had more stuff in those versions. I didn't know the Burke scene. I wasn't, was I wasn't yeah, aware of that. There wasn't in it. There was some places, had, which is why some people remember it. I, I think that's artificial memory, that is. Yeah, I don't think that actually... That never saw the light of day uh, in terms of motion. Yeah, because wasn't that a really big deal when it came out? Yeah. 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 On the anthology, yeah. But there were definitely multiple different... I, I, I named that as an example because I remember a lot of people before that came out in footage, they said, no, I saw this at a But there were definitely early cuts of Aliens that had... like They, they did mention there was... I think one of the things listed was there was some of the colony stuff in it. and It's not as substantial as the special edition, but the early versions out in the theatres did have stuff in there that was later removed. You know, there's just this weird phenomena that, uh, and people were doing that with Predator 2 even, where they were remembering scenes that weren't even in the script. <laughs> and they're like, oh, when I went to theater, I remember this was in it and this was in it and it's not even in mm. the shooting script. So I don't remember that, but that phenomena sometimes happens with a lot of movies in our memory that we remember, I don't know, sometimes we fill in the blanks. I'm not trying to discredit what you're saying. I just don't have any recollection that yeah. that occurred. I just remember we had never seen that until it came out on the anthology. You'd only ever had a grainy still of it, basically. Yeah. For a long time. But yeah, that's what I mean by the artificial memory thing, is, is what EJ is talking about with this this memory phenomenon thing. Yeah. Talking about Amanda then earlier, one of the interesting differences between Cameron's scriptment, as they like to call it, was that Amanda was still alive. A bitter old woman. That would have been a bit more of a downer with your robot cat and with your why did you oh, leave God, me, yeah. mom? Like that would have been a bit worse. It was so brutal it is in his <laughs> scriptment. Like the one one of the other interesting things that I like about the the treatment is um Bishop Bishop in it. So his whole um I can't allow to be harmed uh, a human thing extends to the point of sorry Rip I'm not putting down on the planet. I'm not putting down on the moon to pick you up in case some of the aliens come back and fuck over the rest of humanity. How completely different a film and character would that have been? Yeah, yeah. But now I that's, that's why the movie archaeology thing's so interesting to me. You know, I'm a I'm a big defender of aliens. Obviously, it's my favorite alien movie, and I would like to bring up maybe one more criticism. That's the insect connection, and I would like just to defend it. You know, the criticism with aliens. It's the one I always get annoyed with is uh, when someone says James Cameron turned aliens into bugs while the insect influences were already baked into the xenomorph long before Cameron became involved. You know, writer Dan O'Bannon, he told us that he patterned the life cycle of the alien on insects, on real parasites, on, on wasps in nature, right? The parasitic wasp that paralyzes its prey 
and then lays its eggs inside its prey so the larva could feed off the prey. I mean, it's so creepy, just like Alien. And even um, Ridley Scott said he wanted the alien to be insect-like, which H.R. Giger confirmed. And Ridley even compared the alien to an ant. So it's not Cameron, guys. I mean, it was it, it was already in the goods there. Strange Shapes has a really good article on this that's very much worth reading if anybody's um, that whole curious about this. That whole website is fantastic, Strange Shapes. Well, yeah. Johnny, Johnny's just fucking brilliant. Yeah. Johnny is one of the, the best people I know, full stop. So, yeah. It's been a good few years since he's had the chance to really do stuff on it, but everything that's on there, guys. I used to sit <laughs> I used to sit there at work. The first thing I'd do would be checking morning to see if he'd uploaded a new article. You could spend hours just reading that website, you know, and there's so much information that you forget, you know, so you got to go back and revisit and revisit. But yeah, yeah, no, I he he definitely has a page detailing that and detailing Starship Troopers, as we mentioned, in so many facets. And uh, it's often one I refer to when people complain about that. And I just don't know. I just don't understand the genesis or the root of the complaint. Maybe that root of the complaint comes from the egg morphing yeah, mainly it's the queen and hive mind deviation. thing. Honestly, even with aliens and even with the hive behaviors, I've never seen them as an insectoid like species personally. I mean, yeah, they have some of those behaviors and the double jaws, like you could make some comparisons for sure. But I think that's just kind of humans bringing their own understanding to something that's completely foreign. Not in the same way that the bugs in Starship Troopers are anywhere. They are literally just big bugs like. Well, in the, in the movie, they were dumbed down, but they're actually a lot smarter. Uh, just it, like the it was, ones it was technological in the books. Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. But by the creators, Adam, it was it was intentional. Like I said, it was baked in the goods. Yeah. And, they have uh, traits in common with insects and stuff on purpose, yeah. right? But the, 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 the very life cycle. Yeah. Like but, but I mean, what gets me is, as I said earlier, it's when you have this accusation of, "Oh, Cameron just treats them as cannon fodder." You look at how many aliens are actually killed on camera there's not many and then you have that shot when they're trying to rescue newt through the grit the this grill thing just before she gets abducted and there's a ton of aliens still at he's not mown them down by the hundreds you have sentry guns in these long corridors and it, this occurred to me earlier when i was re-watching it you, that scene where they think newt is an alien and she's on a motion tracker and she dashes across the scene drake opens up with a smart gun it doesn't hit her so these things are not 100% going to definitely hit home. Hicks is pushing it at that point as well. But it's, what I'm saying is you're not going to get home. You might get them, maybe they're injured or something. You hear, yes, you hear screams in the, the nest scene, but they could just as easily be threat noises. You don't see many aliens actually getting killed. And that's what a lot of people think. It's just explosions like a, a Michael Bay film. It's not. When we go to the end of Alien, though, doesn't that grappling hook penetrate the alien? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's what set the precedent. That's why I always say, if you want to blame someone for it, blame Alien, because as soon as that happened, Cameron was within his rights to say, well, military-grade hardware is going to do something Yeah, worse. and I... I, I think there's younger fans out there that have that special director's cut version of Alien is all they know. That cut came out in, uh, I think, 2003, and it featured Dallas and Brett being transformed into those eggs. And they feel like Cameron maybe retconned the life cycle with the Queen. But back in 1986, Cameron didn't know that this scene was going to be- People knew about it. No, but he didn't know, he didn't know it was going to be inserted 17 years later. 
It was a very well-known scene because of things like the Book of Alien. Cameron knew about it, but he said, well, it wasn't included, so it wasn't I'm, in, in the I'm within film. my rights, which is perfectly correct for him to say. Right. Yeah, and that's, yeah. right. that's why Ripley says, I don't know what the hive is, when in the director's yeah. of Alien, she would have seen that's that resonant That's the problem, before. yeah. That's back in, <laughs> that's in the novel. Especially <laughs> she does recognize before it. the internet age, you make a sequel to the movie that was made, not you, may, you don't yeah. make a sequel to the footage left. Completely agree, yeah. Or, yeah. But I yeah. always say it's not incompatible. I say it might be that if you want to bring back Egg Morphin, that's the way, not just for the alien to reproduce in general, that is the way for them to create a queen hosting face saga because Alien 3, we know queens are specialised embryos. That's one that of the things that annoys me theory. about Alien 3 because it, it divorced that whole thing about any alien can become one. But that helps to create a queen hosting face saga. So it's all, it's reconcilable, but I agree with Cameron his job was just to make a sequel to mm-hmm. what we had as a film not what may or may not be there which was ironic because Aliens was one of the first films to do a, effectively a director's cut and it was because of that we had the director's cut of Alien which wasn't actually the director's cut it was a marketing ploy yeah it wasn't Ridley Scott's preferred version but Aliens special edition is Cameron's preferred vert. That is what his intention was to give us. But yeah, I, I see where you're coming from, AJ. Like, I never felt that the second film reduced the threat of the alien just because more of them were killed than in the first film. It made sense with the fact that they were military with military grade weapons, but they were still terrified out of their minds and losing people left and, and, and right. Decimated. They were down to what, four after four, the first actual yeah, conflict? Yeah, a lot of them get taken, plus the guy in command. He's one of the first to get taken. Yeah. Though the alien might have felt invincible in the first film, you know, it's it certainly wasn't. It, well, that's why they had to invent the acid blood. It was never intended to be an invincible when, monster. When you get to a colony, yeah. the acid blood is no longer in play because you're not afraid of creating vacuum. But what is often pointed out is, okay, transpose the people with that accusation. They often say, oh, the, the creature from Alien would have torn them up. And I say, okay, put the creature from Alien with its slow-ass walk. You think it's going to avoid getting hit? The ones in Aliens, they have this really beautiful sort of leap Leaping between walls thing when Ripley's going to get new and it does this leap it's completely convincing which when Covenant came around with that footage of the thing scuttling under the spaceship I said they should have looked back to aliens because it was a it had weight it had inertia and it's leaping between that was beautiful that's something that recognizes it's up against something with a way to take it down but it's doing what an, an actual creature would do to try and take out a threat ripley kills it okay but ripley would have killed the one on the nostromo if she didn't have to worry about acid blood and she had a pulse rifle that thing would have been negated after brett probably back then right. but these things cameron he had the intelligence to realize okay we saw what the harpoon gun did, but it's going to be stupid if I have these colonial marines going there with just machine guns like yeah. in Starship Troopers. But he realized he had to handicap his squad. And by doing that, he he ratchets, his, he ratchets the tension up there because he's got a character like Hudson who comes in for a lot of stick where he's just cracking jokes all the time. But after that moment, it's like in Predator, they're cracking jokes until they realize what the threat is. And Hudson's the one that breaks down and he says, get away from me, man. He's, he's like Vasquez. He's almost going to kill the person that tries to say, are you okay? But Cameron realized he has to treat these 
soldiers plausibly, relatably, but he has to handicap them. He has to cut them off at the knees for the alien to still be a threat. And it works because the alien is a fucking threat. Well, I wouldn't even go that far. And you have Ripley and Hicks saying, we can't even let one of those things in here. They remind the audience that just one of them is going to upset everyone's day badly. They did handicap them, Aaron, with they couldn't use live weapons in the beginning mm. you know, during the and the, the communications plant. as well. Yeah, so there was some handicapping as their forces were very large. They just obeyed the order anyway. Yeah. So yeah, but relatably, not all of them. Yeah, and re- yeah. In terms of like the everything else going off and the tactics that the aliens were using and their own abilities anyway, maybe they don't show up on infrared at all. Yeah. You know, the the aliens were still quite effective regardless of the you know, the armor piercing rounds yeah, and stuff absolutely. anyway. But I mean, after the dropship sequence, you know, Hicks is going through all this stuff. We've only got like 50 rounds each. He's made it so they have to conserve ammunition. They've only got a few grenades, which is part of what makes the theatrical version without the sentry gun sequence work better because you don't have that stuff. But he he cuts them off from supplies. They don't have... I've always said if the Marines are allowed to use pulse rifles or allowed to have apones still in charge, they could have not only survived that first encounter, they could have potentially wiped out out the nest but then again it's not like they run out of ammo when they're being attacked no but from a narrative point of view as soon as hicks says we've only got 50 rounds that ain't good you get the from an audience point of view that's putting the tension up I mean, when it actually comes to it, Vasquez is just shooting, 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 shooting. She's never running out of the stuff. But you hand wave it by assuming, well, maybe she took a few of their magazines or something. You know, I wonder during those sentry scenes if they were originally planning or Cameron was originally planning not to show any aliens getting hit because it looked like they reused footage. They were all inserts. Yeah, it budget. From the hive. Yeah, well, I was thinking that maybe you were just supposed to see, you know, as I mean, it's a suspenseful way of filming it. You just see the mm. the ammo count go down, and you just see the guns fire, and you just hear them. But they kept inserting these reuse mm. scenes from different parts of the movie. But you don't notice it unless you're looking for it. Yeah, that's one of those things if you've only seen it a million times. I mean, it's like when the ADI guys have talked about this part when the facehugger attack with Ripley and Newt. That is another scene which is full of horror and tension right there, psychosexual stuff, even when it's got that over-positive her mouth that whole scene where the ADI guys would they were working for Stan Winston obviously at that point but they were telling telling Cameron no you can't film this in reverse it's n- nobody's going to be convinced and he said yeah yeah people are going to be convinced just you watch and when you watch that scene you never know the the water is actually flowing up you never notice yeah. it you just get this phase out and you're just fixated on this thing Sigourney Weaver she's mostly just wrestling around with this rubber inanimate face hugger but she sells that confrontation so Cameron and her and most of them, they just sell so much of this film in ways that if you'd got lesser actors, and I say that even though some of them, their careers weren't the best after this, but lesser people to do those same scenes, they wouldn't have sold it as well. So much of it is just so the right people at the right time in the right place, it's lightning in a bottle. Yeah. I mean, take Bill, for example. How many people try and emulate Hudson as a, as a character? Yeah. And he was archetype. ashamed of that. He thought, oh, my career's over. I'm never going to... And that kind of role sort of made him uh, a household name almost. He, he got 
as soon as he did that, people went, oh, you are Hudson in Aliens, yes! And people remembered him for that role because he, you do get people like that in real military units. You get like you get Gormans in real military units. It's so funny. He, he maybe on the day of his death, he still hated himself in Predator, Predator Two. Too. Yeah, you know, but it's funny because even if you go back to old reviews, he's one of the things. If even if it's a bad review, that he's praised. He does that role really well. I'm someone who doesn't yeah. might like Predator Two much, but I I think he did that role really well. He was a very different character in Predator Two and Beyond Aliens. I mean, he was never a stereotype as that sort of character he played in Aliens. He had a lot of different roles, obscure reference here, but even like Twister, right? Like his character in that was. I found him as the same character in Predator Two, jokey, cocky, until he got scared. Of course, game over, man. Put her in charge. And he had the surname of Lambert as well, which is another. Yeah. <laughs> And anyway, they're related, don't you know, Adam? They're related. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that fair too. I mean, there was more to Bill's stuff, you know. Adam's had Twister. Yeah. You know, ter- uh, not Terminator. Um, what's the other T? Titanic. Yeah. Oh, he's done loads. After Dark? Perfect Dark? Oh, near Dark, yeah. He wasn't, was he in, yeah. wasn't he in Apollo 13? Yes. Also? Yes, he was He was one the astronaut that got left behind, if I remember rightly. No, did he no, go? They, they all survived, I think, but love it. No, I mean, one, one of them was ill and didn't go on. No, the he was on the mission. He was on the mission. Right. But I remember him zero Gs. But yeah, I mean, Bill Paxton, now he was probably the most successful one out. I mean, outside of Sigourney Weaver, obviously. I think his career probably took off the most, didn't it? The one I didn't figure out was Michael Bean, right? And because he's so charismatic and. Um, well, that was substance. Yeah, substance, substance abuse, wasn't it? Well, he yeah. still had some significant roles after that. I mean, it was, yeah, it was in Abyss, Tombstone. Wasn't there one, there was a military movie he was in after that? US oh, Navy the Seals. Seals, yeah. yeah. yeah with Charlie Sheen, yeah. And he was in uh, Robert Rodriguez, what was that film? It was one of the um, grunge movies. Oh, grunge oh, House. Oh, Planet grunge Terror. House. Yeah, Planet Terror. Yeah. But um, no, he was fantastic in Terminator. He was fantastic in Alien. I liked him in the I'm Abyss. hoping his career re- revitalizes now because well, he's, he's a good, yeah. Yeah, he, he was really good in Mandalorian. He played a, a villain basically in that, but he, he's got that sort of like mature. He's basically in that role that like Stephen Lang in Avatar was, which is ironic because Stephen Lang, aud- I don't know if it was for Hicks, but he auditioned for one of the characters in Aliens and he didn't get it but he's occupying a similar sort of niche now acting wise michael Bean. yeah i just really thought his career was going to take off and he did too i remember reading an interview of his and he was like you know i was i was praised in the terminator and i had so much screen time and arnold who only had this little amount of time just got a bigger star and you know nothing really happened with him except for cameron putting him in his movies he didn't really seem to break it big I think that's still one of the main reasons I lament Alien 5 would have just been seeing Sigourney and Michael Bean together again in those roles. That alone would have been such a significant thing. Mm. That's one of the things I really liked about the Audible as well, was actually getting to hear Michael Bean back as Hicks Mm. (laughs) actually giving a shit. Yeah, as opposed to Colonial Marines, yeah. Yeah, it does make a difference when an actor cares about a role as opposed to just doing it by the numbers. And I wasn't a big fan of the story, but it was nice having him and Lance Henriksen back in those roles and they caring about it. Yeah. And, and yeah. the characters in this one are brilliant as well because even yeah. some of the bit parts, you know, mm. for, for how much time Rico Ross is actually in it and how much time, you know, Drake's in it and stuff like that. They're memorable. Aside from the stunt, I guess the, the stunt guys, unfortunately, everybody... But then again, even Wes Bowski gets 
gets a lot of love from the Wazbowski Hunters stuff from back in the day as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it set a lot of archetypes in characters, or seems to. Well, Drake gets a lot of love from the Sailing Rabbit on her forums. <laughs> yes. I mean, a lot yeah. of love. But I think it's really it's really Hicks, right? It's Burke, it's Bishop, it's Newt, it's Vasquez, and Hudson, right? Those are the main, you know. I mean, even though I love a pwn, you know, I mean, I, I mean, all of them. There's so many ones that are great, but those you just really, you know, and, and in a way, and no one get upset at me here, but this is where one of the areas that Aliens tops Alien for me. It's just when it comes to the characters, in Aliens, you have characters that through this well-crafted screenplay of James Cameron, you connect with them more and subsequently get more invested in. You know, it hurts that much more when you lose them versus an alien. And I'm not criticizing Alien. I love the characters, but they're not written as well to match that. You know, you still love them because they're casted so well and they're charismatic actors. And to be fair, you know, the story by Dan O'Bannon is so good that you don't need to have that connection. But in comparison to me, it's, the Aliens is superior. You know, they, it hurts when you see Hudson go down. Yes. You know, or Vasquez. I do think Aliens had like naturally more likable characters. That's not to say I think that they were stronger necessarily than than Alien, but they're, one of the things that is to be commended that they also talked about on the commentary was there was typically a lot more people on screen in any given scene than there were in the first film. Like usually in the first film, they'd be in smaller groups. But in this one, you were juggling like, I mean, at first it started as a lot of people, but then you would at least have like six or seven people in almost every scene with with a few exceptions. And to have all the balance with that and still be drawn to these characters was a really interesting ensemble cast element of this movie. One of the things I also wanted to bring up on this podcast was that, and you can tell me if you guys agree with me here or not, but I feel like this is the movie that made the Alien franchise have staying power. Like this was the movie that turned it into this um, ongoing thing that got people cosplaying, that yeah. kicked off the the comic series. Like this, this was the one that that's why we're still anticipating Aliens stuff today is because of this movie. As much as I love and respect the first movie, without this one, there wouldn't have been this lasting franchise that we still have. It's more than that, especially at that time. It was it had this. It gained it quickly gained this reputation of being one of the few sequels which either equaled or surpassed the original. Back then, I think it was The Godfather and Empire Strikes Back. People said those were the only ones, and this was finally kind of joining that league. And you also had, because Ripley herself is written, she's fleshed out way better in this than in Alien. This was also the film which, although it's it's got it's famous for the pyrotechnic stuff, this was the film which really got a lot of like feminist authors and stuff talking about Ripley. She's this first bona fide action lead who's a female character her and Vasquez although Vasquez doesn't have the as much dramatic yeah. dialogue and stuff she wasn't just a survivor yes. when she was the first one she was a hero an icon a real about how to write a strong female character in a, a believable so she became like she she broke that mold in this as opposed to yes she wasn't the action lead in alien but not as much as it was this this got a lot of people 
people thinking like with Alien it got people thinking in terms of art with H.R. Giga this one got people thinking about archetypes and things well this was a blockbuster right this made Alien a franchise it made Alien a property action figures video games cosplay I mean this is I always mirror this to the Terminator franchise you know you have that great classic horror film the Terminator horror action you got the great classic Alien horror film but it was Terminator 2 so that popularized yeah the toys and gave you the ride at Universal Studios and was the big eye opener and it brought in huge fan bases and and Aliens was the same way you know Alien was just standalone wonderful amazing fantastic I see some people lament that they say that's a problem with it but what's the problem of mass appeal mass appeal is there because you've done something good and also I I think it's worth Carrie Hen who we did interview me me and Aaron a, a while back I said back then that one of the elements that makes this work so damned well is because Newt, up until, and even a long time after, it was always you had an annoying child that appeared. Newt was a character you could believe was a traumatized child who had effectively been in a war zone for, what, two weeks of her life. And even without the previous colony stuff, Rebecca Jordan, she she is an ultra bit. And you had that interesting thing that a lot of radio hosts say. They say, talk to children as though they're adults and adults as though they're children. And you see that Ripley talks to Newt and Newt talks to Ripley. She has that thing about, you know, Casey doesn't have bad dreams. She doesn't have that because she's a lump of plastic. And you, she starts to talk her to her like an adult, where she talks yeah. to Hudson like a child because she kind of needs to break through to his almost childlike mentality. But because Newt is being treated like an adult and the element of Newt, which could have fallen flat on its face so easily... A huge part of why Aliens worked so well was because you could totally believe in that the dynamic between Sigourney Weaver and Carrie Hen, it wasn't an annoying child. It was a child that completely, she felt like one of the most mature characters in the film. And we didn't really have that again until I would say maybe Jurassic Park, where the kids were semi-annoying, but I kind of like Lex, especially. You kind of like got, she's a valid character, I believed in her performance. And unfortunately, like Carrie Hen, Lexi's actress kind of quit acting not long after that. But Newt really made Aliens work. And a lot of people forget about that. You didn't have to wait too long because you had that with young John Connor, which could have went so bad in Terminator yeah, 2. It's around the same time. It's interesting with these same parallels that you have these original classic films and then they have these blockbuster franchise sequels. And then you have films. It's interesting how they parallel each. You know, the third film, they kill off Sarah Connor. Third film of Alien, they kill off Hicks and Newt. Yeah. All the fans get pissed off. And then you have these string of films that most fans feel like have never reached the heights of the second one or the first one. So it's interesting how they parallel each other in so many ways. Yeah, I I think it's always a tricky thing having a a child character in a a horror movie and a lot of them doesn't work too well. But yeah, Carrie Hines' performance was great in this. And even though she didn't pursue a lifelong career in acting, it's been really cool to see her kind of return to the fandom as of late and, and be more involved with that. She loves the Newt Lives post. Yeah. People, that character was was so impactful for people, which yeah. is another, again, reason like we lament Alien 5 is like we wanted to see her as an adult and what was going to become of this character. We did see that in the comic. And we almost yeah, saw that. We almost saw it in the Predator. Predator. Yeah. <laughs> yes. That would have right. been something. That would have been, yeah, just to see her come back. 
Go on then, guys. Favorite character from the film? Uh, it's got to be Hudson and Apone for me, and then Vasquez, close second. So a tie between Apone and Hudson and then Vasquez. Probably between Ripley and Hicks, I think. And I think their their dynamic was so strong in that movie. It's hard to pick one or the other. Well, Ripley kind of goes without saying. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, yeah, she's the main character, but I just think her dynamic was so strong of returning to face your fears and all that. Like, yeah. Yeah, but if we're if we're not doing Ripley, then then probably Hicks. Outside of Ripley, obviously, um, I said to you guys on a, a private chat the other day, I'm surprised Pharaoh hasn't had an action figure of her. Yeah, own. no yeah. love for the pilots, right? Although in AVP two, they did like the character there was a really good nod to her. I yeah, thought. yeah, but yeah, With the awful accent. toy manufacturers. Can we have a Pharaoh action figure? She's a British Pharaoh. I think there's people online that actually make custom figures of her and they sell them. Actually, if you probably Google it, you'll find them. Yeah. I would probably say it, for me, outside of Ripley, actually probably outside of Ripley, I'd say Burke puts in a fantastic yeah. performance. Uh, he's great. He, because he was a comedian before that, obviously he had the comedic timing. That's why that character works so well, so well. Perfect corporate sleazebag because they're all nice and friendly yeah. at first. And but he sold it so well. It was a believable one. It still very much is. So I'd say either Burke, Newt, or as little as we had of him, he really made the most of what he had, Apone. He yeah. was a completely yeah, was believable. Great. He didn't feel like an actor. And a big part of that was because the yeah. Al Matthews, he was in Vietnam. Yeah. I completely am sold on him inhabiting yeah. Apone. It could it's another example like Newt, where that character could have been so much of a cardboard cutout, but when push came to shove, you can see why Cameron actually commissioned the guy to get the other actors working as a unit. Yeah. What about you, Aaron? I think mine's pretty obvious. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> what about you, Hicks? It's funny because I, I, I don't know why I liked him so much as a kid. Well, he feels like the smartest guy in the room, man. As, as I've got older, I've sort of, I, I kind of identify with the cool, even yeah. tempered. He processes things. He doesn't overreact. He's not quick to judge. He's a he great leader. Asleep. <laughs> He falls asleep. Which is a real thing. Military personnel, they do go on tanks and APCs and they rumble along, but there's people who video them and they're fast asleep. It's, it's a real Come thing. on, it's an express elevator from hell. <laughs> and I do like that. how he's kind of a hesitant leader and Ripley has to kind of nudge him into that role mm. a little bit. There's that little bit of Clint Eastwood about him that he, he's, he's quiet, but when he acts, he's like, no offense, let's do this. He's, he's the one that's got it together. Yeah. It's hard for me to imagine that previous actor. I forget his name. but James Remar. I couldn't imagine anybody other than Michael Bean in the role. He made that character his own. Yeah, that means he did a great job. And wasn't he busted for drugs? I think that's why he lost the job. Yeah. Yeah. Which it was always only a rumor, but everybody kind of knew it was true. But then he came out eventually. He owned up to it. Yeah, it was like, yeah, I had, <laughs> I had a bit of a drug problem and alienated Hollywood. All my friends in Hollywood. Yeah, and wasn't he really good friends with Walter Hill too? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was in some films of his. Yeah, that, and that's it, a lot of articles say that might have given him some brownie points in auditions because they'd worked with him. But I mean, you say the same about his replacement. Michael Bean worked with Cameron on the Terminator and Lance Henriksen, of course. He worked with him. So, and Bill. 
I think Bill Paxton is the one actually introduced him to Michael Bean before the Terminator. They did a movie together, Lords of something. And I remember, I remember in one of the interviews that Bill Paxton said, "Oh, you got aliens? Write me a part." Like they they met each <laughs> other in an airport or something like that. And I wonder if Bill Paxton was the reason he was in the movie, you know, because he yeah. kind of just. Just Again, it, out it, there. it was the right people at the right place, the right uh, type. You you so sell, but when you get it, and obviously it's allowed to come to fruition because a lot of people thought this about Alien Five, Blonde Camps, Alien Five. You had a lot of people in the right places, but it wasn't allowed to blossom. So we don't know what it would have been like. But in this yeah. case, this was one of those films that literally set the gold bar, the gold standard for how not just science fiction slash horror slash action fusion should be but just sequels films in general so much has come out of it even down to see this is weird like star wars influenced alien and yet you had felicity jones say about her part in rogue one where she has to convince the people who are the infant version of the rebellion to get their shit together and they've got to go and find the doohickey she said she rewatched aliens specifically for sigourney weaver's performance when she's standing before that board of executives and she said she rewatched that and if you watch her trying to convince these rebel alliance people of you know you've got to do this because blah 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 she says you can tell if you compare the scenes which parts i took what from in my performance for that so it's these things they kind of like lead in roundabout sort of ways like you said with bill paxton you you have these weird sort of coincident things that lead back into themselves i think the movie you're thinking of aj was lords of discipline uh, Paxton one. i haven't yes. seen it myself yeah yeah i think he brought cameron over for a screening and cameron was interested as in using him as a cinematographer maybe for terminator i think it was but yeah he's he's the one that originally introduced cameron to being so it's just amazing how these things work yeah. out it goes but, to show how important relationships are in, in yeah. that business especially like stan winston too working with cameron yeah. and bringing him on board yes because yeah. I remember, and I think it was Strange Shapes Journal, where they had all these quotes of Stan Winston's crew, and they asked for the original suit from Alien, and they got it sent through, and they opened it up, and it was decayed to hell. And they said, you, you looked on it, and you could see they'd spray-painted it black and added, like, pasta and car parts to it. And they were amazed the original film made it look as good as it did. So for them to have been able to have created the suits for Aliens, they did an amazing job Stan Winston's crew you can say the same thing about the way the suits are constructed for aliens as well though especially with the black leotards with just random bits and pieces stuck to it they were designed for movement yeah but if you say alien and aliens has something in common it's how well James Cameron himself used not just lighting and shadow but the sheer number but mainly lighting and shadow he was able to hide details by doing the same kind of thing Ridley Scott did on Alien. Uh, but there are some amazing, like the scene where the Queen steps out of the elevator and she, initially she's just in shadow. There's a slight flash of her face. And yeah, then, and it's yeah, just like yeah. stepping out from a curtain of reality. There's some amazing yeah. cinematography in Aliens. It's well, isn't that why they fired the cinematographer? Because he wasn't listening. He wasn't lighting the way Cameron wanted it lit. Yeah, the, the first um, DOP didn't want to, wanted to do his own thing and just light the hell out of everything. Yeah. Don't do that to a director. 
Yeah, so I think he was on. Um, and then they got then they got Adrian Biddle, who'd worked on Alien actually. He was the mm. focus puller on Alien. But that was another interesting thing because they were conscious about not wanting to reassemble the Alien crew, but they still ended up yeah. with, <laughs> with some legacy folk anyway. And speaking of the creature effect stuff as well, you know, you you guys. Are Eric, maybe you touched on it earlier about the the reverse photography. Oh, with the water coming down with the face. I mean, when you think about that whole sequence and it being like five, six different effects and and versions of the face being put together. Just the wheels making the legs go along and you buy it. Oh, yeah. The face hugger on the wire. It's so creepy. Even though you know it's a fake face hugger, the way it crawls. It looks so alive. Everything yeah. in this did. I mean, the, the movement with the jumping as well earlier, you know, it looked... Yeah. You can't complain about any of the creature stuff in no. the film at all. No. It's great to see the facehuggers moving around more and having more yeah. tension with that. Because with Alien, it was very immediate. Like, King gets facehugged just like that. And then you see it kind of static on his face, tightening its tail a bit, and then it's dead. But in this one, it's stalking people in a room, and it's hiding, and then it's jumping out of nowhere. So it was cool to see them have, have more dynamic moves. Same thing with the chestburster, too, having the little arms on there and seeing it wiggle its way out. That was way more vicious than the first one. That The, the one out of the colonies just felt way more vicious mm-hmm. what about what about the introduction of the queen then well not necessarily the introduction but the concept of the queen that was one of the things that first surprised me when i actually ventured into online fandom you know it was it was joining the old mail groups alt.cult.movie.aliens yeah. and one of the first things i saw was people complaining about the queen and i'm like i love the queen i think it's brilliant it might be that egg morphing, you know, egg laying thing. Yeah, that might be the genesis of that. But the execution and design of her. I uh, mean, the, the whole concept of it being two dudes strapped together in a in yeah. a, a shell and the way it looks. Well, you look at those, that behind the scenes footage and it's basically like bin bags and stuff. And you, you look at the finished Trash bags, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, this goes back to one of the criticisms that's held of this. Oh, oh, it's nothing like H.R. Giger would. And you look at H.R. Giger's site, and I think it's still got the letters up there where he said that initially he was full of rage at real. How dare they not invite me back? But then after a few viewings, he realized, yeah, I couldn't have really done anything on this except for designing the Queen. And James Cameron, no, he doesn't name it. He said, whoever designed the Queen was clearly a student of my work. And if James Cameron read that, that must have been such an honor because it's H.R. Yeah. Giger basically saying, I couldn't have done better. This is exactly the kind of design I would have done. So it's, it, he's coming from H.R. Giger's mouth. This is completely retaining the spirit of his design philosophy. And the Queen just works so damned well. I do have some, a lot of people think that the way she walks and moves in this is better than in AVP. I prefer the AVP motion because it, it looks more natural, like it there's yeah. more weight distribution. I know they say she walks like a dinosaur in AVP, but yeah, I've always preferred I that. I prefer that, of, yeah. It, yeah. It, it looks a little more natural because it looks like she would weigh a lot. <laughs> but everything about the, the, the Queen's reveal, right up to how she's fighting the power load, I mean, 
if you actually try and analyze it, the actual conflict with her and the power loader, it doesn't actually amount to much. But it's a lot of these threat gestures. And you literally see this shot of her tail just sort of tightening and constricts. And it really, everything about the queen sells you on this is the same DNA, the same gene structure as is in the little aliens. And even that thing about she, you know, commands these two royal guards either side of her in the nest, that has a beautiful Mexican standoff quality to it. And yet she has this tantrum, but it feels like an animalistic tantrum in the same way as back on the Nostromo's escape shuttle, the Narcissus, what happens when Ripley does the the gas jets, the alien flails a bit. It's the same thing. Cameron isn't introducing anything silly on you. He is mirroring what happened in the original film. But you have the bigger, badder queen. Yeah, she's not meant for combat, but everything about her, it is the alien, but times a hundred. Uh, when Ripley walks into that room with the eggs all around and everything gets quiet. And she's selling her fear. She's not just selling yeah. anger. She is, that is Ripley's old shit moment because you can tell right from the start those nightmares she was having, it was all about chestbursters or being surrounded by eggs. Suddenly, her and her pseudo-daughter are in a minefield of eggs and this is the demon responsible for those Well, what she sells to me is more than the fear is the rage. You know, when that phase, when she's blowing everything up, she's wasting it's her helpful. grenades, torching everything. You can tell the anger, the frustration. You, you could almost see flashbacks of Alien, of Parker, of Brett, of Dallas. And that's what Cameron was saying in the yeah. commentary. He was saying she was literally like burning or I guess metaphorically burning the nightmare out, it was of, a out of her memory there yeah. at that point. But he had to tell Weaver. Weaver was like, do we have to have guns? And he said, yes, your character hates the alien. She's going to shoot the shit out. Weaver didn't comprehend at that point. So I think once yeah. she watched the film, she would. It, that would have been the point where it probably clicked for her. But she gave it her all. Absolutely, It's just like in the scene mm. where she's facing those executives. It's just written on her face. She's so good. Yeah. She, de- she deserved that nomination, that award. Yeah, the only other film like that where I saw a nomination, I think, was for Charlize Theron in Mad Max Fury Road. And she was also nominated for Best Actress, which was really strange for that type of movie. But no, she really did deserve that award. Another thing that goes back to Alien with the Queen is that scene where she's about to climb up the ladder and the Queen has that beautiful reveal where she's not even got her head pointing down it's her head is pointing up serpent like and you have that the reused bit of music from alien as it as she rounds the corner and it's that sort of bit of music that's a callback totally to yeah this kind of brings up another thing I, i i wanted to bring up which was some of my favorite bits of the second film are those callbacks to alien those parallels and you have a number of those in this movie even near the start when the marines are embarking and but right before they wake up you have those shots of of the ship without anyone on it before they all wake up yeah that was the special edition but nothing's on the nose it doesn't do it it's just like they're there but only if you look for them yeah but even later in the film where she's descending into the uh, atmosphere processor to rescue newt we have all the alarms going off and the camera shifts to first person as she's going through this crazy environment with steam blasting and blurring alarms just like the first film and just like you mentioned eric with the alien turning that corner and the same musical motif and even at the end where we think we've gotten away and then the alien is with us on the ship 
just like the first film, but it doesn't feel derivative. Like you were saying, it feels like a natural parallel. That's what makes it, as opposed to a lot of films where they put homages in for the sake of homage, this, it did it for the sake of reinforcing just Ripley's basic, like what is Ripley feeling? She has got all these memories. It's not just the audience. It reinforces stuff. It's not just a tribute for tribute's sake. Everything that, except maybe for the dipping bird, I think, which was on the Sulaco, but, a, a perpetual motion thing, I think they call it. Um, talking about the the hive sequence, then, I mean, when she comes in contact with the eggs and the queen, do you guys think the egg was a deliberate thing, or do you think it was just a involuntary reaction from the egg itself? I think it's deliberately ambiguous. I've, that's always been something I've been like. Hmm, it's like know. the power cutting out and the dropship. You don't. It could be deliberate. Maybe it was just the egg. Yeah, you're not meant to know. I mean, obviously, it's shown that the queen can communicate with her warriors because she they back off. But it's like, can she control the opening of the eggs as well? Maybe she can to an extent, but one of them just doesn't hear it or something. Maybe that's why she threw a tantrum. You're killing the eggs. I can't control this. What are you doing? Another thing I wanted to bring up was a, there's been some rumors of a 4K release coming, I believe, mm. all four of the films. And that's something I would really like to see because Cameron is typically, just like Ridley Scott, is pretty involved when his movies get re-released. And I believe I saw an interview where he has to approve the 4K transfer. That one is completed, but he just has to take the time to view it and approve it. Isn't that true lies? And Abyss on Blu-ray. Oh, man, if we ever get Abyss on Blu-ray. I don't think either of those films, True Lies or Abyss, came out on Blu-ray. Yeah. I think any any type of new transfer he has to approve. I'm still waiting for the 3D version that we were meant yeah, to Yeah, I was literally just about to bring that up. <laughs> he, he was interested in doing a 3D conversion. Which, to be fair, how good, I oh, think, man. Titanic 3D. That was Predator 3D. Was such a good transfer. Yeah, very good. Uh, I think that idea died with Terminator 2 Judgment Day that came out in 3D. In those interviews, he was saying that maybe Aliens would be next, but it didn't do very well. It didn't open as big as other 3D re-releases like Titanic, like Top Gun. Um, It kind of fizzled out. I think because, you know, there's been so many, everyone's seen Terminator 2 to death. Yeah, And there's so many releases. And I I had tickets to go to a 3D showing of it, but then I was like, oh, fuck it, I can't be bothered and cancelled i I saw it but it was only like 3d up to a point and it wasn't as 3d as i was hoping it would be some transfers are better than others i do like the terminator 2 3d but they did have to brighten it up and they took a lot of the blue out of the the finished film so they could do that separation better and a lot of you know a lot of a lot of less shadows and then so there's some hardcore fans that were complaining you know that this is i do plan to get it on home release because i'm sure my we got a 3d tv and i'll probably see the 3d a lot better on there compared to Yes. The Cinema 3, except for Titanic, I was really impressed by the Titanic 3D conversion. But that's the only one that's been a, a conversion that I saw at the cinema and I thought, oh, wow, this feels like a 3D. Every other film I've seen, it's only been a little 3D or I'm, I'm like, this looks exactly the same. I don't know why. It's the projector. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. 3D seems to have kind of fizzled out of theaters a bit. I don't see releases very often. So we'll see if Avatar yeah, again kickstarts it like it did the first time around. Well, they've, they've developed TVs now that you don't need glasses to see 3D. I think only smaller screens so far, though, right? Yeah, I don't. And, you know, it's, it's the question, is it going to catch on? 
you know, a lot of people hated putting on the glasses and so forth, but will, will that catch on? You know, I don't know. I mean, the, what was that game device? The 3DS? The 3DS, that, yeah. That didn't really catch on, right? That was treated more like a you gimmick. You can't get a 3D TV now. I never had one. But you never needed glasses for that either. So as far as I recall. So talking about the music as well, um, Eric was mentioning the reuse stuff earlier. I really like a lot of the, the tracks in this and some of them, I mean, Bishop's, Countdown, countdown, final yeah. countdown. You know, that ended up being quite an iconic piece that got used a lot in a lot of other trailers. And there's one piece that was never used, Hyperspace Countdown. It was never used in that, but it was used in Die Hard. Mm. Yes, yes, it was. I think that was towards the end. It was James Horner to Die Hard as well? Yes. No, did he? Yeah. Don't know. Yeah, but it's, it's, def- it's, it's definitely in Die Hard. It's right at I the end, that. yeah. It's the end, yeah, just before the credits, I think. I remember watching it, and I go, but that's that one on my CD. I love that Horner called James Cameron and Gil Hurd's No, Michael Cameron did Die Hard. You know, they said, hey, you know, you need to be able to write uh, all this original piece of music in such a short period of time. And he says it's impossible. And then Gail Ann Hurd said, uh, "Okay, we'll get someone else to do it. And he said, great, please do. And then I'll stay with you and I will learn from this person. Because if someone could do that in just like two weeks time, they could teach me a lot. And of course, they didn't find anyone. And, you know, he stuck as a composer. So I love that, you know, and Gail, she was tough, man. She was like, she wasn't afraid to threaten someone being fired or. <laughs> Or, uh, or dropping the hammer, you know? She was a little lady, but she had a lot of toughness. Well, speaking of a little lady, right? She uh, played Vasquez for a little bit. A little bit of trivia. She knew how to fire a gun. Just an insert shot, yeah. Yeah, Jeanette apparently couldn't deal with the recoil of the gun when the alien falls, I guess, on top of her from the uh, the chute above. And uh, so they dressed up Gail Ann Hurd as uh, Vasquez, and they gave her the gun, and she knows how to fire a gun, and she was able to handle the recoil. And I think you could see her for a second with a wig on. You can tell it's not... Only if you look. Well, we've seen this film a million times, you know, you, you start to notice this stuff. It's like there's apparently meant to be a part where you can see the metal structure of the queen, but I've never... You can. Yeah, I've, I, I've never seen it, so I'm glad I've never seen it, because people who have, they said, I can never not see it now. Yeah, don't point it out, Aaron. Don't. I haven't seen it either. I was really hoping they'd have fixed that for the Blu-ray release, like they fixed the Bishop hole. Yeah, I was going to say the the hole with Bishop. Yeah, so I was I was always a little disappointed that one that one never got sorted because that's one of those uh, can't unsee it once you've seen it moments for me too. Yeah. Although one of the things I ha- still haven't seen yet is the is the guy in the miniature shots of the colony. The foot, right? I, I can't remember what it is. I just know I haven't cottoned onto it yet, even though I know it's there, and I'm just I'm glad I haven't. There was a, a guy who's apparently seen in a, a background of the Mandalorian, and there's like him holding a microphone, and you see yeah, the CD him out of And it. somebody made a toy figure, like production assistant in the Mandalorian, Kenner figure, and you have this like leg with a G. Oh. <laughs> So the same thing with like Bishop, if we're talking about Eris here, Bishop coming up through the floor when he was severed in half, you see him get up and you can see his body coming up through the hole. Don't tell me. Well, you can't see it anymore because they removed uh. it for the, the Blu-ray. And there's a, also a shot with the queen where you see there's just a hole in her neck and you see the internal Sorry. mechanical workings. That's, it. Look. That's, that's what we just talked about, Adam. We literally just talked about that. The queen yeah. bit? Yes. Oh, sorry, my girlfriend was texting. 
there are movie websites that are dedicated to showing you errors and stuff. And this stuff I can't unsee. But I, so I keep far away from these websites that will show you, you all the errors. You don't want to spoil the, the magic. Bloopers. Yes. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. When a movie is that good, you really don't notice. I'm going to defend our listeners. They don't want to hear it either. (laughs) (laughs) I always said the same thing about learning about movies, but then it was Charles's documentaries on the quadrilogy that really made me interested in filmmaking and I think really enhanced my interest in Mm. the series as well, you know? I, I often wonder what kind of fan I'd be if it weren't for that quadrilogy set. I do. Yeah. Aaron, can I ask you, do you still sleep with your head dug in the pillow? <laughs> <laughs> not for uh, not for 20 years. That's good. So you're getting more oxygen then. That's good. Oh, yeah. That's good. <laughs> but yeah, that, that was a really big part of uh, what made me a fan as well. And that was on the lead up to all the hype for AVP. But that quadrilogy set, I, I still remember opening that for the first time and like unfolding it and unfolding it. I think it was different in the UK. It didn't like yeah, I was, fold I was out into this long thing here. But yeah, all the special features with that. Like I remember just bringing my laptop everywhere and watching those over and over and over again. And it was so cool to get all that insight into like all the hard work that went into making these movies and all the people that were involved. And that's one thing that I really miss about home releases now is how little special features we get. We always always get gypped on that now. And it's unfortunate. I, I always said Charles spoiled us. Spoiled all, all home releases for me. But if you would like to learn more about aliens, one of the best resources these days is a new book by J.W. Rinsler, The Making of Aliens, which I have right here. I believe you've read this all the way through, Aaron, right? Yes, absolutely fantastic books. Rinsler's done Alien and Aliens, and they're both very, very in-depth and and brilliant. I cannot recommend those enough if you like digging into the particulars. And if it, if it wasn't for Rinsler's book, you know, I, I never knew that there's a, there's a whole story of, of Aliens about how Jim wrote the first 90 pages, then he had to go off and do Terminator, but the studio was that impressed by those 90 pages that they were like, you know what, we're going to wait, come back, finish it when you're done, and, and we'll go. You know, I never knew that those 90 pages were thrown away. The first script, the first complete draft, is completely different because those first 90 pages better followed his scriptment, as they like to call it, you know, that treatment that's that's actually pretty different. So Rinsler's been managing to dig up a lots of bits and pieces for these books, and it's a crime, it's a fucking crime that he's not going to be doing an Alien 3. I was disappointed when, when he said that he wasn't. Because Fox or, or Disney, I'm not sure which which one it was, but one of them didn't want to keep going. I, mean, I think we're getting back to this shy about Alien 3 being a train wreck. Yeah, I, I think there's just not enough market for it. How well have the Gibson alternate Alien 3 things done? Like the comic, the novel, the yeah, audio drama? This would be about I know, but people enough. want to Think know. how expensive this book is, how much the research. And to be honest with you, the majority of the public is buying Alien and Aliens, Terminator and Terminator 2. And there's so many people passing on these sequels. I'm Right or wrong, I understand the logic. Yeah, and th- there's a difference between what we would, we would want this kind of book about all of them, Resurrection, Prometheus, everything. But in terms of the publishers, they're probably being given directives and blah 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 yeah they're all we're having to fight the proverbial carter j burks of the world no less a crime though no less a crime i think it do i mean david fincher is such a respected director these days too so to have that greater insight into that hellish experience for him he doesn't want to be 
having nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole nother You remember Ch- when you interviewed Charles about this and he said he got that one telephone call from Fincher and he, Fincher was like, I believe you want to talk to me about Alien 3. And then he like, <laughs> put the phone down or something. He just wasn't happy about it. But anyway, before we uh, Poor guy. go off on another tangent, is anybody else, is there any other particular elements of Aliens you'd just like to celebrate? Yeah, I mean, we could talk about this all night, right? Yeah. But it's it's interesting. To me, Alien and Aliens feel like sub-properties of the same franchise, right? Like, you have different expectations if you see a book that says Alien, or if you see a book that says Aliens. Same thing with the comics. Same thing with the video games now. So that's how impactful it was, is it still has that staying power. And yes, it's the Alien franchise, but Aliens has become a core sub-factor of that franchise, I think. And people still want more alien stuff. I mean, we're about to get another game now that we're super looking forward to, hopefully better than the last Aliens game. But even with that game, it was so cool for me to finally walk through the halls of the Hadley's Hope colony. I mean, the the production design of that colony and the sets were so cool. So to have that experience, that's one thing I can give the old game credit for was just seeing that. And even the fan game now with uh, Hope for the Future, Aaron, that was one of the things that um, I love seeing was more of the colony because I was always curious about that bar and the casino or the colony. So to finally be able to go in that bar and see that, like, again, this goes... Yeah, this goes to the um, thing on the space station with Ripley in the the virtual park, right? Like, I want to see more of the leisure places in the universe of Alien. And we kind of saw that with the AVP 2010 game with the nightclub and that. And so I think Aliens just had so many elements that it introduced that could be expanded upon in the future. Again, this is why Alien as a franchise is because of Aliens. And so that film will always have the most significance in the franchise, I think, because of that reason. Yeah. And I just want to say, you know, I, I, I go on YouTube videos, I see all these comments and it's frustrating sometimes because there's, I, I find a strange anger that overcomes some fans, some strange infighting and competition between Alien and Aliens. And I don't understand it. I can't wrap my head around it. It's like your favorite football team won two championships and the fans argue yeah. which championship was better. <laughs> yes. You know what? Who cares? We both love the same team. And I want everyone to remember just because some people pick aliens and some people pick alien, you can't go wrong picking either of them. Both are classics in their own right. Yes. Just keep that in mind, guys. I can never pick a favorite between any of the first three. It just depends what mood I'm in. You're one of the few people I know that places three with the first two. Mm. Well, it's because I'm a depressing person. I really appreciate <laughs> I almost want to call Aaron a heathen, but that's his line. <laughs> so there's much wrong with Alien 3, but there is much to appreciate with it as well. All right. But we'll talk about that next year. Yes. Yes. Oh, I have one more book shout out too. Not quite as in-depth as Rinsler's, but the set photography has some really good behind-the-scenes mm. photos. So if you're looking for another Aliens book to celebrate the 35th anniversary, I would recommend this one as well. I'm a bit more of a downer on that one because it's there was nothing I hadn't seen before. There's a there. few shots in there I hadn't seen, but it's just a really good gallery, I think, you know, for people who haven't looked at all the behind-the-scenes stuff like we have. True. 
Oh, uh, yeah. If you're talking about books, the other one is the uh, Blueprint Collected book. Oh, that's that was right. very recent. Yeah. That did some amazing stuff. But it's got a lot to do with aliens in there, the colony, not just the ships, but the colonies and all and the individual sort of crawler vehicles and stuff that you hardly ever get to see much of in the film. The APC, it's amazing stuff the people behind that did. And a great tool for the RPG as Very, well, for the um, yeah. game mothers in yes. this. Right. Are we all done then? Yeah. Thank you for everyone who was involved in that film for bringing yes. it to us, basically. Yeah. That really mm-hmm. was a case of timeless movie magic. Indeed. And for all the uh, difficulties on set, uh, it is very much appreciated for the end result. It was a case of um, diamonds being made under pressure, basically. I, I couldn't imagine militaristic sci-fi or sci-fi horror without Alien now. So Pain is temporary, film is permanent. Hmm. Right, well, Adam, because I don't want to do it, we do the socials. If you'd like to check out our website, it's avpgalaxy.net. We are on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. If you're not watching this on YouTube, if you search Alien vs. Predator Galaxy or AVP Galaxy, you're sure to find us. And that's versus as in VS or VS dot. If you'd like to follow me personally, I am only on Twitter as at underscore Corporal Hicks, which I mostly just talk about <laughs> a lot of the aforementioned stuff, you know, Halo and uh, Stargate and Star Trek and Alien and stuff like that. A bit of spacey stuff as well. Got to get your Instagram going, Aaron. Ah, uh, no, I only ever had a personal Instagram. That's what I mean. Get that going. Show people all those books on your shelf back there. I need to post those to the actual main account. <laughs> but if you'd like to follow me personally, it's at RidgeTop21 on both Twitter and Instagram. If you'd like to follow me personally, I'm on Twitter at FN Voodoo Magic. And Eric, I'm guessing you're not bothered. No, I'm moving yes, back enough. again to um, <laughs> DeviantArt, but I've got to choose another name for the account. So. Gotcha. Okay. We'll, ch- we'll check in with him next episode. Yeah, next year. Actually happened. <laughs> oh, and um, something I, I meant to mention at the start of this, but I actually forgot, and it's a question to the listeners. Is there a prize? No. <laughs> no well, it's, it's more content than happy, happy bosses. You'll very rarely hear me shill for things on here because I fucking loathe doing it. You know, even the stuff when we have the tea public and stuff like that, I hate I hate it. But the question is, stuff costs money to host and things like that. And would there be any appetite for people to support us via something like Patreon? Is that something people would be interested in doing and helping out pay the costs of the host? Because there's a lot of stuff on the website and um, th- things get more expensive. And we could we could look at some perks with yeah. that too, like like early viewing of podcasts. And- yeah. What would people like to see as perks? So if, if that's something that our listeners might have some appetite for in helping support us, please let me know uh, before I go to the effort of actually trying to do something. <laughs> So do, do please reach out and uh, let us know if you'd be interested in supporting us that way. You'll never hear us talking about Manscaped or something in the middle of a video, though, so don't worry. <laughs> oh, will they? <laughs> you never know what's cut from these things. Oh, no. Um, <laughs> Podcast over, man. Podcast over. <laughs> Fuck's sake, Adam. Fuck's sake. Uh, anyway, thank you, everybody, for listening. This has been Corporal Hicks. Bridge stop. Voodoo magic. Xenomorphing. Signing off.